Chapter Twenty Seven of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells, The Museum and Library at Alexandria. Before the time of Alexander, Greeks had already been spreading as merchants, artists, officials, mercenary soldiers over most of the Persian dominions. In the dynastic disputes that followed the death of Xerxes, a band of ten thousand Greek mercenaries played a part under the leadership of Xenophon. Their return to the Attic Greece from Babylon is described in his Retreat of the Ten Thousand, one of the first war stories that was ever written by a general in command. But the conquests of Alexander and the division of his brief empire among his subordinate generals greatly stimulated this permeation of the ancient world by the Greeks, and their language and fashions and culture. Traces of this Greek dissemination are to be found far away in Central Asia and in Northwest India. Their influence upon the development of Indian art was profound. For many centuries Athens retained her prestige as a center of art and culture. Her schools went on indeed to 529 A.D., that is to say, for nearly a thousand years. But the leadership in the intellectual activity of the world passed presently across the Mediterranean to Alexandria, the new trading city that Alexander had founded. Here, the Macedonian general Ptolemy had become pharaoh, with a court that spoke Greek. He had become an intimate of Alexander before he became king, and he was deeply saturated with the ideas of Aristotle. He set himself, with great energy and capacity, to organize knowledge and investigation. He also wrote a history of Alexander's campaigns, which, unhappily, is lost to the world. Alexander had already devoted considerable sums to finance the inquiries of Aristotle, but Ptolemy I was the first person to make a permanent endowment of science. He set up a foundation in Alexandria, which was formerly dedicated to the Muses, the Museum of Alexandria. For two or three generations, the scientific work done at Alexandria was extraordinarily good. Euclid, Aristothenes, who measured the size of the earth and came within fifty miles of its true diameter, Apollonius, who wrote on conic sections, Hipparchus, who made the first star map and catalogue, and Hero, who devised the first steam engine, are among the greater stars of an extraordinary constellation of scientific pioneers. Archimedes came from Syracuse to Alexandria to study, and was a frequent correspondent of the museum. Herophilus was one of the greatest of Greek anatomists, and is said to have practiced vivisection. For a generation or so, during the reigns of Ptolemy I and Ptolemy II, there was such a blaze of knowledge and discovery at Alexandria, as the world was not to see again until the 16th century A.D. But it did not continue. There may have been several causes of its decline. Chief among them, the late Professor Mahaffey suggests, was the fact that the museum was a royal college, 
and all its professors and fellows were appointed and paid by Pharaoh. This was all very well when Pharaoh was Ptolemy I, the pupil and friend of Aristotle. But as the dynasty of the Ptolemies went on, they became Egyptianized. They fell under the sway of Egyptian priests and Egyptian religious developments. They ceased to follow the work that was done, and their control stifled the spirit of inquiry altogether. The museum produced little good work after its first century of activity. Ptolemy I not only sought in the most modern spirit to organize the finding of fresh knowledge, he tried also to set up an encyclopedic storehouse of wisdom in the library of Alexandria. It was not simply a storehouse. It was also a book-copying and book-selling organization. A great army of copyists was set to work perpetually, multiplying copies of books. Here, then, we have the definite first opening up of the intellectual process in which we live today. Here, we have the systematic gathering and distribution of knowledge. The foundation of his museum and library marks one of the great epochs in the history of mankind. It is the true beginning of modern history. But the work of research and the work of dissemination went on under serious handicaps. One of these was the great social gap that separated the philosopher, who was a gentleman, from the trader and the artisan. There were glass workers and metal workers in abundance in those days, but they were not in mental contact with the thinkers. The glass worker was making the most beautifully colored beads and files and so forth, but he never made a Florentine flask or a lens. Clear glass does not seem to have interested him. The metal worker made weapons and jewelry, but he never made a chemical balance. The philosopher speculated loftily about atoms and the nature of things, but he had no practical experience of enamels and pigments and filters and so forth. He was not interested in substances. So, Alexandria, in its brief day of opportunity, produced no microscopes and no chemistry. And though Hero invented a steam engine, it was never set either to pump or drive a boat, or do any useful thing. There were few practical applications of science, except in the realm of medicine, and the progress of science was not stimulated and sustained by the interest and excitement of practical applications. There was nothing to keep the work going, therefore, when the intellectual curiosity of Ptolemy I and Ptolemy II was withdrawn. The discoveries of the museum went on record in obscure manuscripts and never, until the revival of scientific curiosity at the Renaissance, reached out to the mass of mankind. Nor did the library produce any improvements in bookmaking. That ancient world had no paper made in definite sizes from rag pulp. Paper was a Chinese invention and it did not reach the Western world until the ninth century A.D. The only book materials were parchment and strips of the papyrus reed joined edge to edge. 
These strips were kept on rolls, which were very unwieldy to wind to and fro and read, and very inconvenient for reference. It was these things that prevented the development of paged and printed books. Printing itself was known in the world, it would seem, as early as the old Stone Age. There were seals in ancient Shumeria, but without abundant paper there was little advantage in printing books, an improvement that may further have been resisted by trades unionism on the part of the copyists employed. Alexandria produced abundant books, but not cheap books, and it never spread knowledge into the population of the ancient world below the level of a wealthy and influential class. So it was that this blaze of intellectual enterprise never reached beyond a small circle of people in touch with the group of philosophers collected by the first two Ptolemies. It was like the light in a dark lantern, which is shut off from the world at large. Within the blaze may be blindingly bright, but nevertheless it is unseen. The rest of the world went on its old ways, unaware that the seed of scientific knowledge that was one day to revolutionize it altogether, had been sown. Presently a darkness of bigotry fell even upon Alexandria. Thereafter, for a thousand years of darkness, the seed that Aristotle had sown lay hidden. Then it stirred and began to germinate. In a few centuries it had become that widespread growth of knowledge and clear ideas that is now changing the whole of human life. Alexandria was not the only center of Greek intellectual activity in the 3rd century B.C. There were many other cities that displayed a brilliant intellectual life amidst the disintegrating fragments of the brief empire of Alexander. There was, for example, the Greek city of Syracuse in Sicily, where thought and science flourished for two centuries. There was Pergamum in Asia Minor, which also had a great library. But this brilliant Hellenic world was now stricken by invasion from the north. New Nordic barbarians, the Gauls, were striking down along the tracks that had once been followed by the ancestors of the Greeks and Phrygians and Macedonians. They raided, shattered and destroyed. And in the wake of the Gauls came a new conquering people out of Italy, the Romans, who gradually subjugated all the western half of the vast realm of Darius and Alexander. They were an able but unimaginative people, preferring law and profit to either science or art. New invaders were also coming down out of Central Asia to shatter and subdue the Soloikid Empire and to cut off the western world again from India. These were the Parthians, hosts of mounted bowmen who treated the Greco-Persian empire of Persepolis and Susa in the 3rd century BC in much the same fashion that the Medes and Persians had treated it in the 7th and 6th. And there were now other nomadic peoples also, coming out of the northeast, peoples who were not fair and Nordic and Aryan-speaking, but yellow-skinned and black-haired, and with a Mongolian speech. 
but of these latter people we shall tell more in a subsequent chapter. End of chapter 27 Chapter 28 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells The Life of Gautama Buddha But now we must go back three centuries in our story to tell of a great teacher who came near to revolutionizing the religious thought and feeling of all Asia. This was Gautama Buddha, who taught his disciples at Benares in India, about the same time that Isaiah was prophesying among the Jews in Babylon, and Heraclitus was carrying on his speculative inquiries into the nature of things at Ephesus. All these men were in the world at the same time, in the 6th century B.C., unaware of one another. This 6th century B.C. was indeed one of the most remarkable in all history. Everywhere, for as we shall tell it was also the case in China, men's minds were displaying a new boldness. Everywhere they were waking up out of the traditions of kingships and priests and blood sacrifices, and asking the most penetrating questions. It is as if the race had reached a stage of adolescence after a childhood of twenty thousand years. The early history of India is still very obscure. Somewhere, perhaps about two thousand B.C., an Aryan-speaking people came down from the northwest into India, either in one invasion or in a series of invasions, and was able to spread its language and traditions over most of North India. Its peculiar variety of Aryan speech was the Sanskrit. They found a brunette people with a more elaborate civilization and less vigor of will in possession of the country of the Indus and Ganges. But they do not seem to have mingled with their predecessors as freely as did the Greeks and Persians. They remained aloof. When the past of India becomes dimly visible to the historian, Indian society is already stratified into several layers, with a variable number of subdivisions, which do not eat together, nor intermarry, nor associate freely. And throughout history this stratification into castes continues. This makes the Indian population something different from the simple, freely interbreeding European or Mongolian communities. It is really a community of communities. Siddhartha Gautama was the son of an aristocratic family which ruled a small district on the Himalayan slopes. He was married at nineteen to a beautiful cousin. He hunted and played and went about in his sunny world of gardens and groves and irrigated rice fields. And it was amidst this life that a great discontent fell upon him. It was the unhappiness of a fine brain that seeks employment. He felt that the existence he was leading was not the reality of life but a holiday, a holiday that had gone on too long. The sense of disease and mortality, the insecurity and the unsatisfactoriness of all happiness descended upon the mind of Gautama. While he was in this mood, he met one of those wandering ascetics who already existed in great numbers in India. These men lived under severe rules, spending much time in meditation and in religious discussion. They were supposed to be seeking some deeper reality in life, 
and a passionate desire to do likewise took possession of Gautama. He was meditating upon this project, says the story, when the news was brought to him that his wife had been delivered of his first-born son. This is another tie to break, said Gautama. He returned to the village amidst the rejoicings of his fellow clansmen. There was a great feast and a notch dance to celebrate the birth of this new tie, and in the night Gautama awoke in a great agony of spirit, quote, like a man who is told that his house is on fire, end quote. He resolved to leave his happy, aimless life forthwith. He went softly to the threshold of his wife's chamber, and saw her, by the light of a little oil lamp, sleeping sweetly, surrounded by flowers, with his infant son in her arms. He felt a great craving to take up the child in one first and last embrace before he departed, but the fear of waking his wife prevented him, and at last he turned away, and went out into the bright Indian moonshine, and mounted his horse and rode off into the world. Very far he rode that night, and in the morning he stopped outside the lands of his clan, and dismounted beside a sandy river. There he cut off his flowing locks with his sword, removed all his ornaments, and sent them and his horse and sword back to his house. Going on, he presently met a ragged man, and exchanged clothes with him, and so having divested himself of all worldly entanglements, he was free to pursue his search after wisdom. He made his way southward to a resort of hermits and teachers in a hilly spur of the Vinja mountains. There lived a number of wise men in a barren of caves, going into the town for their simple supplies and imparting their knowledge by word of mouth to such as cared to come to them. Gautama became versed in all the metaphysics of his age, but his acute intelligence was dissatisfied with the solutions offered him. The Indian mind has always been disposed to believe that power and knowledge may be obtained by extreme ascetism, by fasting, sleeplessness, and self-torment, and these ideas Gautama now put to the test. He betook himself with five disciple companions to the jungle, and there he gave himself up to fasting and terrible penances. His fame spread like the sound of a great bell hung in the canopy of the skies. But it brought him no sense of truth achieved. One day he was walking up and down, trying to think in spite of his enfeebled state. Suddenly he fell unconscious. When he recovered, the preposterousness of these semi-magical ways to wisdom was plain to him. He horrified his companions by demanding ordinary food and refusing to continue his mortifications. He had realized that whatever truth a man may reach is reached best by a nourished brain in a healthy body. Such a conception was absolutely foreign to the ideas of the land and age. His disciples deserted him and went off in a melancholy state to Benares. Gautama wandered alone. When the mind grapples with a great and intricate problem, it makes its advances step by step, with but little realization of the gains it has made, until suddenly, with an effect of abrupt illumination, 
it realizes its victory. So it happened to Gautama. He had seated himself under a great tree by the side of a river to eat, when this sense of clear vision came to him. It seemed to him that he saw life plain. He is said to have sat all day and all night in profound thought, and then he rose up to impart his vision to the world. He went on to Benares, and there he sought out and won back his lost disciples to his new teaching. In the king's deer park at Benares, they built themselves huts and set up a sort of school, to which came many who were seeking after wisdom. The starting point of his teaching was his own question, as a fortunate young man, Why am I not completely happy? It was an introspective question. It was a question very different in quality from the frank and self-forgetful externalized curiosity with which Thales and Heraclitus were attacking the problems of the universe, or the equally self-forgetful burthen of moral obligation that the culminating prophets were imposing upon the Hebrew mind. The Indian teacher did not forget self. He concentrated upon self and sought to destroy it. All suffering, he thought, was due to the greedy desires of the individual. Until man has conquered his personal cravings, his life is trouble, and his end, sorrow. There were three principal forms that the craving for life took, and they were all evil. The first was the desire of the appetites, greed, and all forms of sensuousness. The second was the desire for a personal and egotistic immortality. The third was the craving for personal success, worldliness, avarice, and the like. All these forms of desire had to be overcome to escape from the distresses and chagrins of life. When they were overcome, when self had vanished altogether, the serenity of soul, nirvana, the highest good, was attained. This was the gist of his teaching, a very subtle and metaphysical teaching indeed, not nearly so easy to understand as the Greek injunction to see and know fearlessly and rightly, and the Hebrew command to fear God and accomplish righteousness. It was a teaching much beyond the understanding of even Gautama's immediate disciples, and it is no wonder that so soon as his personal influence was withdrawn, it became corrupted and coarsened. There was a widespread belief in India at that time that at long intervals wisdom came to earth and was incarnate in some chosen person who was known as the Buddha. Gautama's disciples declared that he was a Buddha, the lightest of Buddhas, though there is no evidence that he himself ever accepted the title. Before he was well dead, a cycle of fantastic legends began to be woven about him. The human heart has always preferred a wonder story to a moral effort, and Gautama Buddha became very wonderful. Yet there remained a substantial gain in the world. If Nirvana was too high and subtle for most men's imaginations, if the myth-making impulse in the race was too strong for the simple facts of Gautama's life, they could, at least, grasp something of the intention of what Gautama called the Eightfold Way, the Aryan or Noble Path in life. In this, 
there was an insistence upon mental uprightness, upon right aims and speech, right conduct, an honest livelihood. There was a quickening of the conscience and an appeal to generous and self-forgetful ends. End of chapter 28 Chapter 29 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells King Ashoka For some generations after the death of Gautama, these high and noble Buddhist teachings, this first, plain teaching, that the highest good for man is the subjugation of self, made comparatively little headway in the world. Then they conquered the imagination of one of the greatest monarchs the world has ever seen. We have already mentioned how Alexander the Great came down into India and fought with Porus upon the Indus. It is related by the Greek historians that a certain Chandragupta Maurya came into Alexander's camp and tried to persuade him to go on to the Ganges and conquer all India. Alexander could not do this because of the refusal of his Macedonians to go further into what was for them an unknown world, and later on, 303 B.C., Chandragupta was able to secure the help of various hill tribes and realize his dream without Greek help. He built up an empire in North India and was presently, 303 B.C., able to attack Seleucus I in the Punjab and drive the last vestige of Greek power out of India. His son extended this new empire. His grandson, Ashoka, the monarch of whom we now have to tell, found himself in 264 B.C. ruling from Afghanistan to Madras. Ashoka was at first disposed to follow the example of his father and grandfather and complete the conquest of the Indian peninsula. He invaded Kalinga, 255 B.C., a country on the east coast of Madras. He was successful in his military operations and, alone among conquerors, he was so disgusted by the cruelty and horror of war that he renounced it. He would have no more of it. He adopted the peaceful doctrines of Buddhism and declared that henceforth his conquests should be the conquests of religion. His reign for eight and twenty years was one of the brightest interludes in the troubled history of mankind. He organized a great digging of wells in India and the planting of trees for shade. He founded hospitals and public gardens and gardens for the growing of medical herbs. He created a ministry for the care of the aborigines and subject races of India. He made provision for the education of women. He made vast benefactions to the Buddhist teaching orders and tried to stimulate them to a better and more energetic criticism of their own accumulated literature. For corruptions and superstitious accretions had accumulated very speedily upon the pure and simple teaching of the great Indian master. Missionaries went from Ashoka to Kashmir, to Persia, to Ceylon and Alexandria. Such was Ashoka, greatest of kings. He was far in advance of his age. He left no prince and no organization of men to carry on his work, and within a century of his death, the great days of his reign had become a glorious memory in a shattered and decaying India.
the priestly caste of the Brahmins, the highest and most privileged caste in the Indian social body, has always been opposed to the frank and open teaching of Buddha. Gradually, they undermined the Buddhist influence in the land. The old monstrous gods, the innumerable cults of Hinduism, resumed their sway. Caste became more rigorous and complicated. For long centuries Buddhism and Brahmanism flourished side by side, and then, slowly, Buddhism decayed, and Brahmanism in a multitude of forms replaced it. But beyond the confines of India and the realms of caste, Buddhism spread, until it had won China and Siam and Burma and Japan, countries in which it is predominant to this day. End of chapter 29 Chapter 30 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells Confucius and Lao Tse. We have still to tell of two other great men, Confucius and Lao Tse, who lived in that wonderful century which began the adolescence of mankind, the 6th century B.C. In this history thus far, we have told very little of the early story of China. At present, that early history is still very obscure, and we look to Chinese explorers and archaeologists in the new China that is now arising to work out their past as thoroughly as the European past has been worked out during the last century. Very long ago, the first primitive Chinese civilizations arose in the great river valleys out of the primordial Heolithic culture. They had, like Egypt and Sumeria, the general characteristics of that culture, and they centered upon temples, in which priests and priest-kings offered the seasonal blood sacrifices. The life in those cities must have been very like the Egyptian and Sumerian life of six or seven thousand years ago, and very like the Maya life of Central America a thousand years ago. If there were human sacrifices, they had long given way to animal sacrifices before the dawn of history, and a form of picture writing was growing up long before a thousand years B.C. And just as the primitive civilizations of Europe and Western Asia were in conflict with the nomads of the desert and the nomads of the north, so the primitive Chinese civilizations had a great cloud of nomadic peoples on their northern borders. There was a number of tribes akin in language and ways of living who are spoken of in history in succession as the Huns, the Mongols, the Turks and Tartars. They changed and divided and combined and recombined, just as the Nordic peoples in North Europe and Central Asia changed and varied in name rather than in nature. These Mongolian nomads had horses earlier than the Nordic peoples, and it may be that in the region of the Altai Mountains they made an independent discovery of iron somewhere after 1000 B.C. And just as, in the Western case, so ever and again these Eastern nomads would achieve a sort of political unity and become the conquerors and masters and revivers of this or that settled and civilized region. It is quite possible that the earliest civilization of China was not Mongolian at all any more 
than the earliest civilization of Europe and Western Asia was Nordic or Semitic. It is quite possible that the earliest civilization of China was a brunette civilization, and of a piece with the earliest Egyptian, Sumerian, and Dravidian civilizations, and that, when the first recorded history of China began, there had already been conquests and intermixture. At any rate, we find that by 1750 B.C., China was already a vast system of little kingdoms and city-states, all acknowledging a loose allegiance and paying more or less regularly, more or less definite feudal dues to one great priest, emperor, the Son of Heaven. The Shang dynasty came to an end in 1125 B.C. A Chou dynasty succeeded Shang and maintained China in a relaxing unity until the days of Ashoka in India and of the Ptolemies in Egypt. Gradually China went to pieces during that long Chou period. Hunnish peoples came down and set up principalities. Local rulers discontinued their tribute and became independent. There was in the 6th century BC, says one Chinese authority, five or six thousand practically independent states in China. It was what the Chinese call in their records an age of confusion. But this age of confusion was compatible with much intellectual activity and with the existence of many local centers of art and civilized living. When we know more of Chinese history, we shall find that China also had her Miletus and her Athens, her Pergamum and her Macedonia. At present, we must be vague and brief about this period of Chinese division, simply because our knowledge is not sufficient for us to frame a coherent and consecutive story. And just as in divided Greece there were philosophers, and in shattered and captive Jewry prophets, so, in disordered China, there were philosophers and teachers at this time. In all these cases, insecurity and uncertainty seemed to have quickened the better sort of mind. Confucius was a man of aristocratic origin and some official importance in a small state called Lu. Here, in a very parallel mood to the Greek impulse, he set up a sort of academy for discovering and teaching wisdom. The lawlessness and disorder of China distressed him profoundly. He conceived an ideal of a better government and a better life, and traveled from state to state seeking a prince who would carry out his legislative and educational ideas. He never found his prince. He found a prince, but court intrigues undermined the influence of the teacher and finally defeated his reforming proposals. It is interesting to note that a century and a half later, the Greek philosopher Plato also sought a prince, and was for a time advisor to the tyrant Dionysius, who ruled Syracuse in Sicily. Confucius died a disappointed man. No intelligent ruler arises to take me as his master, he said, and my time has come to die but his teaching had more vitality than he imagined in his declining and hopeless years, and it became a great formative influence with the Chinese people. It became one of what the Chinese call the three teachings, 
the other two being those of Buddha and of Lao Tse. The gist of the teaching of Confucius was the way of the noble or aristocratic man. He was concerned with personal conduct as much as Gautama was concerned with the peace of self-forgetfulness, and the Greek with external knowledge, and the Jew with righteousness. He was the most public-minded of all great teachers. He was supremely concerned by the confusion and miseries of the world, and he wanted to make men noble in order to bring about a noble world. He sought to regulate conduct to an extraordinary extent, to provide sound rules for every occasion in life. A polite, public-spirited gentleman, rather sternly self-disciplined, was the ideal he found already developing in the northern Chinese world, and one to which he gave a permanent form. The teaching of Lao Tse, who was for a long time in charge of the imperial library of the Chou dynasty, was much more mystical and vague and elusive than that of Confucius. He seems to have preached a stoical indifference to the pleasures and powers of the world, and the return to an imaginary simple life of the past. He left writings very contracted in style and very obscure. He wrote in riddles. After his death his teachings, like the teachings of Gautama Buddha, were corrupted and overlaid by legends, and had the most complex and extraordinary observances and superstitious ideas grafted upon them. In China, just as in India, primordial ideas of magic and monstrous legends out of the childish past of our race struggled against the new thinking in the world and succeeded in plastering it over with grotesque irrational and antiquated observances both buddhism and taoism which ascribes itself largely to lao tse as one finds them in china now are religions of monk temple priest and offering of a type as ancient in form if not in thought as the sacrificial religions of ancient Shumeria and Egypt. But the teaching of Confucius was not so overlaid, because it was limited and plain and straightforward, and lent itself to no such distortions. North China, the China of the Huanghu River, became Confucian in thought and spirit. South China, Yangtze Kiang China, became Taoist. Since those days, a conflict has always been traceable in Chinese affairs between these two spirits, the spirit of the North and the spirit of the South, between, in latter times, Pekin and Nankin, between the official-minded, upright and conservative North, and the skeptical, artistic, lax and experimental South. The divisions of China of the Age of Confusion reached their worst stage in the 6th century B.C. The Chou dynasty was so enfeebled and so discredited that Lao Tse left the unhappy court and retired into private life. Three nominally subordinate powers dominated the situation in those days. Tsis and Tsin, both northern powers, and Chu, which was an aggressive military power in the Yangtze Valley. At last, Tsi and Tsin formed an alliance, subdued Chu, and imposed a general treaty of disarmament and peace in China. 
the power of Tsin became predominant. Finally, about the time of Ashoka in India, the Tsin monarch seized upon the sacrificial vessels of the Chou Emperor and took over his sacrificial duties. His son, Shi Huang Ti, king in 246 BC, emperor in 220 BC, is called in the Chinese chronicles the first universal emperor. More fortunate than Alexander, Shi Huang Ti reigned for 36 years as king and emperor. His energetic reign marks the beginning of a new era of unity and prosperity for the Chinese people. He fought vigorously against the Hunnish invaders from the northern deserts, and he began that immense work, the Great Wall of China, to set a limit to their incursions. End of chapter 30 Chapter 31 of a Short History of the World by H. G. Wells. Rome Comes into History. The reader will note a general similarity in the history of all these civilizations, in spite of the effectual separation caused by the great barriers of the Indian northwest frontier and of the mountain masses of Central Asia and further India. First, for thousands of years, the Heliolithic culture spread over all the warm and fertile river valleys of the old world and developed a temple system and priest rulers about its sacrificial traditions. Apparently, its first makers were always those brunette peoples we have spoken of as the central race of mankind. Then the nomads came in from the regions of seasonal grass and seasonal migrations and superposed their own characteristics, and often their own language, on the primitive civilization. They subjugated and stimulated it, and were stimulated to fresh developments, and made it here one thing, and here another. In Mesopotamia it was the Elamite, and then the Semite. And at last the Nordic Medes and Persians, and the Greeks, who supplied the ferment, over the region of the Aegean peoples it was the Greeks, in India it was the Aryan speakers, in Egypt there was a thinner infusion of conquerors into a more intensely saturated priestly civilization. In China the Han conquered and was absorbed and was followed by fresh Huns. China was Mongolized just as Greece and North India were Aryanized and Mesopotamia Semitized and Aryanized. Everywhere the nomads destroyed much, but everywhere they brought in a new spirit of free inquiry and moral innovation. They questioned the beliefs of immemorial ages. They let daylight into the temples. They set up kings who were neither priests nor gods, but mere leaders among their captains and companions. In the centuries following the 6th century B.C., we find everywhere a great breaking down of ancient traditions and the new spirit of moral and intellectual inquiry awake, a spirit never more to be altogether stilled in the great progressive movement of mankind. We find reading and writing becoming common and accessible accomplishments among the ruling and prosperous minority. They were no longer the jealously guarded secret of the priests. 
travel is increasing, and transport growing easier by reason of horses and roads. A new and easy device to facilitate trade has been found in coined money. Let us now transfer our attention back from China, in the extreme east of the old world, to the western half of the Mediterranean. Here we have, to note, the appearance of a city which was destined to play, at last a very great part indeed, in human affairs, Rome. Hitherto we have told very little about Italy in our story. It was before 1000 B.C. a land of mountain and forest and thinly populated. Aryan-speaking tribes had pressed down this peninsula and formed little towns and cities, and the southern extremity was studded with Greek settlements. The noble ruins of Paestum preserve for us to this day something of the dignity and splendor of these early Greek establishments. A non-Aryan people, probably akin to the Aegean peoples, the Etruscans, had established themselves in the central part of the peninsula. They had reversed the usual process by subjugating various Aryan tribes. Rome, when it comes into the light of history, is a little trading city at a ford on the Tiber, with a Latin-speaking population ruled over by Etruscan kings. The old chronologies gave 753 B.C., as the date of the founding of Rome, half a century later than the founding of the great Phoenician city of Carthage, and twenty-three years after the first Olympiad. Etruscan tombs of a much earlier date than 753 B.C. have, however, been excavated in the Roman Forum. In that red-letter century, the sixth century B.C., the Etruscan kings were expelled, 510 B.C., and Rome became an aristocratic republic, with a lordly class of patrician families, dominating a commonalty of plebeians. Except that it spoke Latin, it was not unlike many aristocratic Greek republics. For some centuries, the internal history of Rome was the story of a long and obstinate struggle for freedom, and a share in the government on the part of the plebeians. It would not be difficult to find Greek parallels to this conflict, which the Greeks would have called a conflict of aristocracy with democracy. In the end, the plebeians broke down most of the exclusive barriers of the old families and established a working equality with them. They destroyed the old exclusiveness and made it possible and acceptable for Rome to extend her citizenship by the inclusion of more and more outsiders. For while she still struggled at home, she was extending her power abroad. The extension of Roman power began in the 5th century BC. Until that time, they had waged war, and generally unsuccessful war, with the Etruscans. There was an Etruscan fort, Veii, only a few miles from Rome, which the Romans had never been able to capture. In 474 B.C., however, a great misfortune came to the Etruscans. Their fleet was destroyed by the Greeks of Syracuse and Sicily. At the same time, a wave of Nordic invaders came down upon them from the north, the Gauls. Caught between Roman and Gaul, the Etruscans fell and disappeared from history. Veii was captured by the Romans. 
The Gauls came through to Rome and sacked the city, 390 B.C., but could not capture the capital. An attempted night surprise was betrayed by the cackling of some geese, and finally the invaders were bought off and retired to the north of Italy again. The Gaulish raid seems to have invigorated rather than weakened Rome. The Romans conquered and assimilated the Etruscans, and extended their power over all central Italy, from the Arno to Naples. To this they had reached within a few years of 300 B.C. Their conquests in Italy were going on simultaneously with the growth of Philip's power in Macedonia and Greece, and the tremendous raid of Alexander to Egypt and the Indus. The Romans had become notable people in the civilized world, to the east of them by the breakup of Alexander's empire. To the north of the Roman power were the Gauls, to the south of them were the Greek settlements of Magna Graecia, that is to say, of Sicily, and of the toe and heel of Italy. The Gauls were a hardy, warlike people, and the Romans held that boundary by a line of forts and fortified settlements. The Greek cities in the south, headed by Tarentum, now Taranto, and by Syracuse in Sicily, did not so much threaten as fear the Romans. They looked about for some help against these new conquerors. We have already told how the empire of Alexander fell to pieces and was divided among his generals and companions. Among these adventurers was a kinsman of Alexander's named Pyrrhus, who established himself in Epirus, which is across the Adriatic Sea, over against the heel of Italy. It was his ambition to play the part of Philip of Macedonia to Magna Graecia, and to become protector and master-general of Tarentum, Syracuse, and the rest of that part of the world. He had what was then it very efficient modern army. He had an infantry phalanx, cavalry from Sicily, which was now quite as good as the original Macedonian cavalry, and twenty fighting elephants. He invaded Italy and routed the Romans in two considerable battles, Heraclea, 280 B.C., and Osculum, 279 B.C., and having driven them north, he turned his attention to the subjugation of Sicily. But this brought against him a more formidable enemy than were the Romans at that time, the Phoenician trading city of Carthage, which was probably then the greatest city in the world. Sicily was too near Carthage for a new Alexander to be welcome there, and Carthage was mindful of the fate that had befallen her mother city Tyre half a century before. So she sent a fleet to encourage or compel Rome to continue the struggle, and she cut the overseas communications of Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus found himself freshly assailed by the Romans, and suffered a disastrous repulse in an attack he had made upon their camp at Beneventum between Naples and Rome. And suddenly came news that recalled him to Epirus. The Gauls were raiding south, but this time they were not raiding down into Italy. The Roman frontier, fortified and guarded, had become too formidable for them. They were raiding down through Illyria, which is now Serbia and Albania, to Macedonia and Epirus. Repulsed by the Romans, endangered at sea by the Carthaginians, and threatened at home by the Gauls, 
Pyrrhus abandoned his dream of conquest and went home, 275 B.C., and the power of Rome was extended to the Straits of Messina. On the Sicilian side of the Straits was the Greek city of Messina, and this presently fell into the hands of a gang of pirates. The Carthaginians, who were already practically overlords of Sicily and allies of Syracuse, suppressed these pirates, 270 B.C., and put in a Carthaginian garrison there. The pirates appealed to Rome, and Rome listened to their complaint. And so, across the Straits of Messina, the great trading power of Carthage, and this new conquering people, the Romans, found themselves in antagonism face to face. End of chapter 31 Chapter 32 of a Short History of the World by H. G. Wells, Rome and Carthage. It was in 264 B.C. that the great struggle between Rome and Carthage, the Punic Wars, began. In that year Ashoka was beginning his reign in Behar and Shihuangti was a little child. The museum in Alexandria was still doing good scientific work, and the barbaric Gauls were now in Asia Minor, and exacting a tribute from Pergamum. The different regions of the world were still separated by insurmountable distances, and probably the rest of mankind heard only vague and remote rumors of the mortal fight that went on for a century and a half in Spain, Italy, North Africa, and the Western Mediterranean, between the last stronghold of Semitic power and Rome, this newcomer, among Aryan-speaking peoples. That war has left its traces upon issues that still stir the world. Rome triumphed over Carthage, but the rivalry of Aryan and Semite was to merge itself later on in the conflict of Gentile and Jew. Our history now is coming to events whose consequences and distorted traditions still maintain a lingering and expiring vitality in and exercise a complicating and confusing influence upon the conflicts and controversies of today. The First Punic War began in 264 B.C. about the pirates of Messina. It developed into a struggle for the possession of all Sicily except the dominions of the Greek king of Syracuse. The advantage of the sea was at first with the Carthaginians, they had great fighting ships of what was hitherto an unheard of size, quinqueremes, galleys with five banks of oars and a huge ram. At the Battle of Salamis, two centuries before, the leading battleships had only been triremes with three banks. But the Romans, with extraordinary energy and in spite of the fact that they had little naval experience, set themselves to outbuild the Carthaginians. They manned the new navy they created chiefly with Greek seamen, and they invented grappling and boarding to make up for the superior seamanship of the enemy. When the Carthaginian came up to ram or shear the oars of the Roman, huge grappling irons seized him, and the Roman soldiers swarmed aboard him. At Milet, 260 B.C., and at Egnomus, 256 B.C., the Carthaginians were disastrously beaten. They repulsed a Roman landing near Carthage, 
but were badly beaten at Palermo, losing one hundred and four elephants there. To grace such a triumphal procession through the forum as Rome had never seen before. But after that came two Roman defeats, and then a Roman recovery. The last naval forces of Carthage were defeated by its last Roman effort at the Battle of the Aegean Isles, 241 B.C., and Carthage sued for peace. All Sicily except the dominions of Hero, king of Syracuse, was ceded to the Romans. For twenty-two years Roman Carthage kept the peace. Both had trouble enough at home. In Italy the Gauls came south again, threatened Rome, which in a state of panic offered human sacrifices to the gods, and were routed at Telamon. Rome pushed forward to the Alps, and even extended her dominions down the Adriatic coast to Illyria. Carthage suffered from domestic insurrections and from revolts in Corsica and Sardinia, and displayed far less recuperative power. Finally, an act of intolerable aggression. Rome seized and annexed the two revolting islands. Spain, at that time, was Carthaginian, as far north as the river Ebro. To that boundary the Romans restricted them. Any crossing of the Ebro by the Carthaginians was to be considered an act of war against the Romans. At last in 218 BC, the Carthaginians, provoked by new Roman aggressions, did cross this river under a young general named Hannibal, one of the most brilliant commanders in the whole of history. He marched his army from Spain over the Alps into Italy, raised the Gauls against the Romans, and carried on the Second Punic War in Italy itself for fifteen years. He inflicted tremendous defeats upon the Romans at Lake Trasimir and at Cannae, and throughout all his Italian campaigns no Roman army stood against him and escaped disaster. But a Roman army had landed at Marseilles and cut his communications with Spain. He had no siege train, and he could never capture Rome. Finally, the Carthaginians, threatened by the revolt of the Numidians at home, were forced back upon the defense of their own city in Africa. A Roman army crossed into Africa, and Hannibal experienced his first defeat under its walls at the Battle of Zama, 202 B.C., at the hands of Scipio Africanus the Elder. The Battle of Zama ended the Second Punic War. Carthage capitulated. She surrendered Spain and her war fleet. She paid an enormous indemnity and agreed to give up Hannibal to the vengeance of the Romans. But Hannibal escaped and fled to Asia, where later, being in danger of falling into the hands of his relentless enemies, he took poison and died. For fifty-six years Rome and the shorn city of Carthage were at peace. And meanwhile, Rome spread her empire over confused and divided Greece, invaded Asia Minor, and defeated Antiochus III, the Soloikid monarch, at Magnesia in Lydia. She made Egypt, still under the Ptolemies, and Pergamum, and most of the small states of Asia Minor into allies, or, as we should call them now, protected states. Meanwhile Carthage, subjugated and enfeebled, had been slowly regaining something of her former prosperity. 
her recovery revived the hate and suspicion of the Romans. She was attacked upon the most shallow and artificial of quarrels, 149 B.C. She made an obstinate and bitter resistance, stood a long siege, and was stormed, 146 B.C. The street fighting, or massacre, lasted six days. It was extraordinarily bloody, and when the citadel capitulated, only about 50,000 of the Carthaginian population remained alive out of a quarter of a million. They were sold into slavery, and the city was burned and elaborately destroyed. The blackened ruins were ploughed and sown as a sort of ceremonial effacement. So ended the Third Punic War. Of all the Semitic states and cities that had flourished in the world five centuries before, only one little country remained free under native rulers. This was Judea, which had liberated itself from the Soloikids and was under the rule of the native Maccabean princes. By this time it had its Bible almost complete and was developing the distinctive traditions of the Jewish world as we know it now. It was natural that the Carthaginians, Phoenicians, and kindred peoples dispersed about the world should find a common link in their practically identical language and in this literature of hope and courage. To a large extent, there were still the traders and bankers of the world. The Semitic world had been submerged rather than replaced. Jerusalem, which has always been rather the symbol than the center of Judaism, was taken by the Romans in 65 B.C., and after various vicissitudes of quasi-independence and revolt, was besieged by them in 70 A.D., and captured after a stubborn struggle. The temple was destroyed. A later rebellion in 132 A.D. completed its destruction, and the Jerusalem we know today was rebuilt later under Roman auspices. A temple to the Roman god, Jupiter Capitolinus, stood in the place of the temple, and Jews were forbidden to inhabit the city. End of chapter 32 Chapter 33 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells The Growth of the Roman Empire Now this new Roman power, which arose to dominate the Western world in the 2nd and 1st centuries B.C., was in several respects a different thing from any of the great empires that had hitherto prevailed in the civilized world. It was not at first a monarchy, and it was not the creation of any one great conqueror. It was not indeed the first of republican empires. Athens had dominated a group of allies and dependents in the times of Pericles, and Carthage, when she entered upon her fatal struggle with Rome, was mistress of Sardinia and Corsica, Morocco, Algiers, Tunis, and most of Spain and Sicily. But it was the first republican empire that escaped extinction and went on to fresh developments. The center of this new system lay far to the west of the more ancient centers of empire, which had hitherto been the river valleys of Mesopotamia and Egypt. This westward position enabled Rome to bring into civilization quite fresh regions and peoples. The Roman power extended to Morocco and Spain, and was presently able to thrust north-westward 
over what is now France and Belgium, to Britain, and northeastward into Hungary and South Russia. But on the other hand, it was never able to maintain itself in Central Asia or Persia, because they were too far from its administrative centers. It included, therefore, great masses of fresh Nordic Aryan-speaking peoples. It presently incorporated nearly all the Greek people in the world, and its population was less strongly Hamitic and Semitic than that of any preceding empire. For some centuries, this Roman Empire did not fall into the grooves of precedent that had so speedily swallowed up Persian and Greek, and all that time it developed. The rulers of the Medes and Persians became entirely Babylonized in a generation or so. They took over the tiara of the king of kings and the temples and priesthoods of his gods. Alexander and his successors followed in the same easy path of assimilation. The Seleucid monarchs had much the same court and administrative methods as Nebuchadnezzar. The Ptolemies became pharaohs and altogether Egyptian. They were assimilated, just as before them the Semitic conquerors of the Sumerians had been assimilated. But the Romans ruled in their own city, and for some centuries kept to the laws of their own nature. The only people who exercised any great mental influence upon them before the second or third century A.D. were the kindred and similar Greeks. So that the Roman Empire was essentially a first attempt to rule a great dominion upon mainly Aryan lines. It was so far a new pattern in history. It was an expanded Aryan Republic. The old pattern of a personal conqueror ruling over a capital city that had grown up round the temple of a harvest god did not apply to it. The Romans had gods and temples, but like the gods of the Greeks, their gods were quasi-human immortals, divine patricians. The Romans also had blood sacrifices and even made human ones in times of stress, things they may have learned to do from their dusky Etruscan teachers. But until Rome was long past its zenith, neither priest nor temple played a large part in Roman history. The Roman Empire was a growth, an unplanned, novel growth. The Roman people found themselves engaged, almost unawares, in a vast administrative experiment. It cannot be called a successful experiment. In the end, their empire collapsed altogether, and it changed enormously in form and method from century to century. It changed more in a hundred years than Bengal or Mesopotamia or Egypt changed in a thousand. It was always changing. It never attained to any fixity. In a sense, the experiment failed. In a sense, the experiment remains unfinished, and Europe and America today are still working out the riddles of worldwide statescraft first confronted by the Roman people. It is well for the student of history to bear in mind the very great changes, not only in political but in social and moral matters, that went on throughout the period of Roman dominion. There is much too strong a tendency in people's minds to think of the Roman rule as something finished and stable, firm, rounded, noble and decisive. Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome, CPQR, 
the elder Cato, the Scipios, Julius Caesar, Diocletian, Constantine the Great, triumphs, orations, gladiatorial combats, and Christian martyrs, are all mixed up together in a picture of something high and cruel and dignified. The items of that picture have to be disentangled. They are collected at different points from a process of change, profounder than that which separates the London of William the Conqueror from the London of today. We may very conveniently divide the expansion of Rome into four stages. The first stage began after the sack of Rome by the Goths in 390 B.C., and went on until the end of the First Punic War, 240 B.C. We may call this stage the stage of the Assimilative Republic. It was, perhaps, the finest, most characteristic stage in Roman history. The age-long dissensions of patrician and plebeian were drawing to it close. The Etruscan threat had come to an end. No one was very rich, yet nor very poor and most men were public-spirited. It was a republic, like the Republic of the South African Boers before 1900, or like the Northern States of the American Union between 1800 and 1850, a free farmer's republic. At the outset of this stage, Rome was a little state, scarcely twenty miles square. She fought the sturdy but kindred states about her, and sought not their destruction, but coalescence. Her centuries of civil dissension had trained her people in compromise and concessions. Some of the defeated cities became altogether Roman, with a voting share in the government. Some became self-governing, with the right to trade and marry in Rome. Garrisons full of citizens were set up at strategic points, and colonies of varied privileges founded among the freshly conquered people. Great roads were made. The rapid Latinization of all Italy was the inevitable consequence of such a policy. In 89 BC, all the free inhabitants of Italy became citizens of the city of Rome. Formally, the whole Roman Empire became at last an extended city. In 212 AD, every free man in the entire extent of the empire was given citizenship the right, if he could get there, to vote in the town meeting in Rome. This extension of citizenship to tractable cities and whole countries was the distinctive device of Roman expansion. It reversed the old process of conquest and assimilation altogether. By the Roman method, the conquerors assimilated the conquered. But after the First Punic War and the annexation of Sicily, Though the old process of assimilation still went on, another process arose by its side. Sicily, for instance, was treated as a conquered prey. It was declared an estate of the Roman people. Its rich soil and industrious population was exploited to make Rome rich. The patricians and the more influential among the plebeians secured the major share of that wealth and the war also brought in a large supply of slaves. Before the First Punic War, the population of the Republic had been largely a population of citizen farmers. Military service was their privilege and liability. While they were on active service, their farms fell into debt, 
and a new large-scale slave agriculture grew up. When they returned, they found their produce in competition with slave-grown produce from Sicily and from the new estates at home. Times had changed. The Republic had altered its character. Not only was Sicily in the hands of Rome, the common man was in the hands of the rich creditor and the rich competitor. Rome had entered upon its second stage, the Republic of Adventurous Rich Men. For two hundred years the Roman soldier farmers had struggled for freedom and a share in the government of their state. For a hundred years they had enjoyed their privileges. The First Punic War wasted them and robbed them of all they had won. The value of their electoral privileges had also evaporated. The governing bodies of the Roman Republic were two in number. The first, and more important, was the Senate. This was a body originally of patricians, and then of prominent men of all sorts, who were summoned to it, first by certain powerful officials, the consuls and censors. Like the British House of Lords, it became a gathering of great landowners, prominent politicians, big businessmen, and the like. It was much more like the British House of Lords than it was like the American Senate. For three centuries, from the Punic Wars onward, it was the center of Roman political thought and purpose. The second body was the Popular Assembly. This was supposed to be an assembly of all the citizens of Rome. When Rome was a little state, twenty miles square, this was a possible gathering. When the citizenship of Rome had spread beyond the confines in Italy, it was an altogether impossible one. Its meetings, proclaimed by horn-blowing from the capital and the city walls, became more and more a gathering of political hacks and city riffraff. In the 4th century BC, the popular assembly was a considerable check upon the Senate, a competent representation of the claims and rights of the common man. By the end of the Punic Wars, it was an impotent relic of a vanquished popular control. No effectual legal check remained upon the big men. Nothing of the nature of representative government was ever introduced into the Roman Republic. No one thought of electing delegates to represent the will of the citizens. This is a very important point for the student to grasp. The popular assembly never became the equivalent of the American House of Representatives or the British House of Commons. In theory, it was all the citizens. In practice, it ceased to be anything at all worth consideration. The common citizen of the Roman Empire was therefore in a very poor case after the Second Punic War. He was impoverished. He had often lost his farm. He was ousted from profitable production by slaves, and he had no political power left to him to remedy these things. The only methods of popular expression left to a people without any form of political expression are the strike and the revolt. The story of the second and first centuries BC, so far as internal politics go, is a story of futile revolutionary upheaval. The scale of this history will not permit us to tell of the intricate struggles of that time, of the attempts to break up estates, 
and restore the land to the free farmer, of proposals to abolish debts in whole or in part. There was revolt and civil war. In 73 B.C., the distresses of Italy were enhanced by a great insurrection of the slaves under Spartacus. The slaves of Italy revolted with some effect, for among them were the trained fighters of the gladiatorial shows. For two years Spartacus held out in the crater of Vesuvius, which seemed at that time to be an extinct volcano. This insurrection was defeated at last and suppressed with frantic cruelty. Six thousand captured Spartacists were crucified along the Appian Way, the great highway that runs southward out of Rome, 71 B.C. The common man never made head against the forces that were subjugating and degrading him, but the big rich men who were overcoming him were even in his defeat preparing a new power in the Roman world over themselves and him, the power of the army. Before the Second Punic War, the army of Rome was a levy of free farmers, who, according to their quality, rode or marched afoot to battle. This was a very good force for wars close at hand, but not the sort of army that will go abroad and bear long campaigns with patience. And moreover, as the slaves multiplied and the estates grew, the supply of free-spirited fighting farmers declined. It was a popular leader named Marius who introduced a new factor. North Africa, after the overthrow of the Carthaginian civilization, had become a semi-barbaric kingdom, the kingdom of Numidia. The Roman power fell into conflict with Jugurtha, king of this state, and experienced enormous difficulties in subduing him. Marius was made consul, in a phase of public indignation, to end this discreditable war. This he did by raising paid troops and drilling them hard. Jugurtha was brought in chains to Rome, 106 B.C., and Marius, when his time of office had expired, held on to his consulship illegally with his newly created legions. There was no power in Rome to restrain him. With Marius began the third phase in the development of the Roman power, the Republic of the Military Commanders. For now began a period in which the leaders of the paid legions fought for the mastery of the Roman world. Against Marius was pitted the aristocratic Sulla, who had served under him in Africa. Each in turn made a great massacre of his political opponents. Men were proscribed and executed by the thousand, and their estates were sold. After the bloody rivalry of these two and the horror of the revolt of Spartacus, came a phase in which Lucullus and Pompey, the great, and Grassus and Julius Caesar were the masters of armies and dominated affairs. It was Crassus who defeated Spartacus. Lucullus conquered Asia Minor and penetrated to Armenia, and retired with great wealth into private life. Crassus, thrusting further, invaded Persia, and was defeated and slain by the Parthians. After a long rivalry, Pompey was defeated by Julius Caesar, 48 BC, and murdered in Egypt, leaving Julius Caesar sole master of the Roman world. 
The figure of Julius Caesar is one that has stirred the human imagination out of all proportion to its merit or true importance. He has become a legend and a symbol. For us he is chiefly important as marking the transition from the phase of military adventurers to the beginning of the fourth stage in Roman expansion, the early empire. For in spite of the profoundest economic and political convulsions, in spite of civil war and social degeneration, throughout all this time, the boundaries of the Roman state crept outward and continued to creep outward to their maximum about 100 A.D. There had been something like an ebb during the doubtful phases of the Second Punic War, and again a manifest loss of vigor before the reconstruction of the army by Marius. The revolt of Spartacus marked a third phase. Julius Caesar made his reputation as a military leader in Gaul, which is now France and Belgium. The chief tribes inhabiting this country belonged to the same Celtic people as the Gauls who had occupied North Italy for a time, and who had afterwards raided into Asia Minor and settled down as the Galatians. Caesar drove back a German invasion of Gaul, and added all that country to the empire, and he twice crossed the Straits of Dover into Britain, 55 and 54 BC, where, however, he made no permanent conquest. Meanwhile, Pompey the Great was consolidating Roman conquests that reached in the east to the Caspian Sea. At this time, the middle of the first century BC, the Roman Senate was still the nominal center of the Roman government, appointing consuls and other officials, granting powers and the like, and a number of politicians, among whom Cicero was an outstanding figure, were struggling to preserve the great traditions of Republican Rome and to maintain respect for its laws. But the spirit of citizenship had gone from Italy, with the vasting away of the free farmers. It was a land now of slaves and impoverished men, with neither the understanding nor the desire for freedom. There was nothing whatever behind these Republican leaders in the Senate, while behind the great adventurers they feared and desired to control were the legions. Over the heads of the Senate, Crassus and Pompey and Caesar divided the rule of the empire between them, the first triumvirate. When presently Crassus was killed at distant Carhi by the Parthians, Pompey and Caesar fell out. Pompey took up the Republican side, and laws were passed to bring Caesar to trial for his breaches of law and his disobedience to the decrees of the Senate. It was illegal for a general to bring his troops out of the boundary of his command, and the boundary between Caesar's command and Italy was the Rubicon. In 49 BC he crossed the Rubicon, saying, The die is cast, and marched upon Pompey and Rome. It had been the custom in Rome in the past, in periods of military extremity, to elect a dictator with practically unlimited powers to rule through the crisis. After his overthrow of Pompey, Caesar was made dictator first for ten years and then, in 45 BC, for life. In effect, he was made monarch of the empire for life. 
there was talk of a king, a word abhorrent to Rome, since the expulsion of the Etruscans five centuries before. Caesar refused to be king, but adopted throne and scepter. After his defeat of Pompey, Caesar had gone on into Egypt and had made love to Cleopatra, the last of the Ptolemies, the goddess queen of Egypt. She seems to have turned his head very completely. He had brought back to Rome the Egyptian idea of a god-king. His statue was set up in a temple with an inscription to the unconquerable god. The expiring republicanism of Rome flared up in a last protest, and Caesar was stabbed to death in the Senate at the foot of the statue of his murdered rival, Pompey the Great. Thirteen years more of this conflict of ambitious personalities followed. There was a second triumvirate of Lepidus, Mark Antony, and Octavian Caesar, the latter the nephew of Julius Caesar. Octavian, like his uncle, took the poorer, hardier western provinces, where the best legions were recruited. In 31 BC, he defeated Mark Antony, his only serious rival, at the naval battle of Actium, and made himself sole master of the Roman world. But Octavian was a man of different quality altogether from Julius Caesar. He had no foolish craving to be god or king. He had no queen-lover that he wished to dazzle. He restored freedom to the Senate and people of Rome. He declined to be dictator. The grateful Senate, in return, gave him the reality instead of the forms of power. He was to be called not king, indeed, but princeps and Augustus. He became Augustus Caesar, the first of the Roman emperors, 27 B.C. to 14 A.D., he was followed by Tiberius Caesar, 14 to 37 AD, and he by others, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, and so on up to Trajan, 98 AD, Hadrian, 117 AD, Antonius Pius, 138 AD, and Marcus Aurelius, 161 to 180 AD. All these emperors were emperors of the legions. The soldiers made them, and some the soldiers destroyed. Gradually, the Senate fades out of Roman history, and the emperor and his administrative officials replace it. The boundaries of the empire crept forward now to their utmost limits. Most of Britain was added to the empire. Transylvania was brought in as a new province, Dacia. Trajan crossed the Euphrates. Hadrian had an idea that reminds us at once of what had happened at the other end of the old world. Like Shi Huang Ti, he built walls against the northern barbarians. One across Britain, and a palisade between the Rhine and the Danube. He abandoned some of the acquisitions of Trajan. The expansion of the Roman Empire was at an end. End of chapter 33 Chapter 34 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells Between Rome and China The second and first centuries B.C. mark a new phase in the history of mankind. Mesopotamia and the eastern Mediterranean are no longer the center of interest. 
Both Mesopotamia and Egypt were still fertile, populous, and fairly prosperous, but they were no longer the dominant regions of the world. Power had drifted to the west and to the east. Two great empires now dominated the world, this new Roman Empire and the Renaissance Empire of China. Rome extended its power to the Euphrates, but it was never able to get beyond that boundary. It was too remote. Beyond the Euphrates, the former Persian and Indian dominions of the Seleucids fell under a number of new masters. China, now under the Han dynasty, which had replaced the Tsin dynasty at the death of Shivang Ti, had extended its power across Tibet and over the high mountain passes of the Pamirs into western Turkestan. But there, too, it reached its extremes. Beyond was too far. China at this time was the greatest, best organized, and most civilized political system in the world. It was superior in area and population to the Roman Empire at its zenith. It was possible then for these two vast systems to flourish in the same world at the same time, in almost complete ignorance of each other. The means of communication, both by sea and land, was not yet sufficiently developed and organized for them to come to a direct clash. Yet they reacted upon each other in a very remarkable way, and their influence upon the fate of the regions that lie between them, upon Central Asia and India, was profound. A certain amount of trade trickled through, by camel caravans across Persia, for example, and by coasting ships by way of India and the Red Sea. In 66 BC, Roman troops under Pompey followed in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and marched up the eastern shores of the Caspian Sea. In 102 AD, a Chinese expeditionary force under Pan Chao reached the Caspian and sent emissaries to report upon the power of Rome. But many centuries were still to pass before definite knowledge and direct intercourse were to link the great parallel worlds of Europe and Eastern Asia. To the north of both these great empires were barbaric wildernesses. What is now Germany was largely forest lands. The forests extended far into Russia and made a home for the gigantic Eurochs, a bull of almost elephantine size. Then to the north of the great mountain masses of Asia stretched a band of deserts, steppes, and the forests and frozen lands. In the eastward lap of the elevated part of Asia was the great triangle of Manchuria. Large parts of these regions, stretching between South Russia and Turkestan into Manchuria, were and are regions of exceptional climatic insecurity. Their rainfall has varied greatly in the course of a few centuries. They are lands treacherous to man. For years they will carry pasture and sustained cultivation, and then will come an age of decline in humidity and a cycle of killing droughts. The western part of this barbaric north, from the German forests to South Russia and Turkestan and from Gothland to the Alps, was the region of origin of the Nordic peoples and of the Aryan speech. The eastern steppes and deserts of Mongolia was the region of origin of the Hunnish or Mongolian or Tartar or Turkish peoples. For all these, several peoples were akin in language, 
race and way of life. And as the Nordic peoples seem to have been continually overflowing their own borders and pressing south upon the developing civilizations of Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean coast, so the Hunnish tribes sent their surplus as wanderers, raiders and conquerors into the settled regions of China. Periods of plenty in the north would mean an increase in population there. A shortage of grass, a spell of cattle disease, would drive the hungry, warlike tribesmen south. For a time, there were simultaneously two fairly effective empires in the world, capable of holding back the barbarians, and even forcing forward the frontiers of the imperial peace. The thrust of the Han Empire from North China into Mongolia was strong and continuous. The Chinese population welled up over the barrier of the Great Wall. Behind the imperial frontier guards came the Chinese farmer with horse and plough, ploughing up the grasslands and enclosing the winter pasture. The Hunnish peoples raided and murdered the settlers, but the Chinese punitive expeditions were too much for them. The nomads were faced with the choice of settling down to the plough and becoming Chinese taxpayers, or shifting in search of fresh summer pastures. Some took the former course and were absorbed. Some drifted northeastward and eastward, over the mountain passes down into the western Turkestan. This westward drive of the Mongolian horsemen was going on from 200 BC onward. It was producing a westward pressure upon the Aryan tribes, and these again were pressing upon the Roman frontiers, ready to break through directly there was any weakness apparent. The Parthians, who were apparently a Scythian people, with some Mongolian admixture, came down to the Euphrates by the 1st century BC. They fought against Pompey the Great in his eastern raid. They defeated and killed Crassus. They replaced the Soloikid monarchy in Persia by a dynasty of Parthian kings, the Arsakid dynasty. But for a time, the line of least resistance for hungry nomads lay neither to the west nor the east, but through Central Asia, and then southeastward through the Khyber Pass into India. It was India which received the Mongolian drive in these centuries of Roman and Chinese strength. A series of raiding conquerors poured down through the Punjab into the Great Plains to loot and destroy. The empire of Ashoka was broken up, and for a time the history of India passes into darkness. A certain Kushan dynasty founded by the Indo-Scythians, one of the raiding peoples, ruled for a time over North India and maintained a certain order. These invasions went on for several centuries. For a large part of the 5th century AD, India was afflicted by the Ephthalites or White Huns, who levied tribute on the small Indian princes and held India in terror. Every summer these Ephthalites, pastured in western Turkestan, every autumn they came down through the passes to terrorize India. In the 2nd century AD, a great misfortune came upon the Roman and Chinese empires that probably weakened the resistance of both to barbarian pressure. This was a pestilence of unexampled virulence. It raged for 11 years in China and disorganized the social framework profoundly. 
the Han dynasty fell, and a new age of division and confusion began, from which China did not fairly recover until the 7th century A.D. with the coming of the great Tang dynasty. The infection spread through Asia to Europe. It raged throughout the Roman Empire from 164 to 180 A.D. It evidently weakened the Roman imperial fabric very seriously. We begin to hear of depopulation in the Roman provinces after this, and there was a marked deterioration in the vigor and efficiency of government. At any rate, we presently find the frontier no longer invulnerable, but giving way first in this place and then in that. A new Nordic people, the Goths, coming originally from Gothland in Sweden, had migrated across Russia to the Volga region and the shores of the Black Sea, and taken to the sea and piracy. By the end of the second century they may have begun to feel the westward thrust of the Huns. In 247 they crossed the Danube in a great land raid, and defeated and killed the Emperor Decius in a battle in what is now Serbia. In 236 another Germanic people, the Franks, had broken bounds upon the lower Rhine, and the Alemanni had poured into Alzac. The legions in Gaul beat back their invaders, but the Goths in the Balkan peninsula raided again and again. The province of Dacia vanished from Roman history. A chill had come to the pride and confidence of Rome. In 270-275, Rome, which had been an open and secure city for three centuries, was fortified by the Emperor Aurelian. End of chapter 34 Chapter 35 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells The Common Man's Life Under the Early Roman Empire Before we tell of how this Roman Empire which was built up in the two centuries B.C. and which flourished in peace and security from the days of Augustus Caesar onward for two centuries, fell into disorder and was broken up, it may be as well to devote some attention to the life of the ordinary people throughout this great realm. Our history has come down now to within two thousand years of our own time, and the life of the civilized people, both under the peace of Rome and the peace of the Han dynasty, was beginning to resemble more and more clearly the life of their civilized successors today. In the Western world, coined money was now in common use. Outside the priestly world, there were many people of independent means, who were neither officials of the government nor priests. People traveled about more freely than they had ever done before, and there were high roads and inns for them. Compared with the past, with the time before 500 B.C., life had become much more loose. Before that date, Civilized men had been bound to a district or country, had been bound to a tradition, and lived within a very limited horizon. Only the nomads traded and travelled. But neither the Roman peace nor the peace of the Han dynasty meant a uniform civilization over the large areas they controlled. There were very great local differences and great contrasts and inequalities of culture between one district and another, just as there are today under the British peace in India. The Roman garrisons and colonies were dotted here and there over this great space, 
worshipping Roman gods and speaking the Latin language. But where there had been towns and cities before the coming of the Romans, they went on, subordinated indeed, but managing their own affairs, and for a time at least, worshipping their own gods in their own fashion. Over Greece, Asia Minor, Egypt and the Hellenized East generally, the Latin language never prevailed. Greek ruled there invincibly. Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, was a Jew and a Roman citizen, but he spoke and wrote Greek and not Hebrew. Even at the court of the Parthian dynasty, which had overthrown the Greek Seleucids in Persia, and was quite outside the Roman imperial boundaries, Greek was the fashionable language. In some parts of Spain and in North Africa, the Carthaginian language also held on for a long time in spite of the destruction of Carthage. Such a town as Seville, which had been a prosperous city long before the Roman name had been heard of, kept its Semitic goddess and preserved its Semitic speech for generations, in spite of a colony of Roman veterans at Italica a few miles away. Septimus Severus, who was emperor from 193 to 211 A.D., spoke Carthaginian as his mother's speech. He learned Latin later as a foreign tongue, and it is recorded that his sister never learned Latin and conducted her Roman household in the Punic language. In such countries as Gaul and Britain, and in provinces like Decia, now roughly Romania, and Pannonia, Hungary south of the Danube, where there were no pre-existing great cities and temples and cultures. The Roman Empire did, however, Latinize. It civilized these countries for the first time. It created cities and towns where Latin was from the first the dominant speech, and where Roman gods were served and Roman customs and fashions followed. The Romanian, Italian, French, and Spanish languages all variations and modifications of Latin remain to remind us of this extension of Latin speech and customs. Northwest Africa also became at last largely Latin-speaking. Egypt, Greece, and the rest of the empire to the east were never Latinized. They remained Egyptian and Greek in culture and spirit, and even in Rome, among educated men, Greek was learned as the language of a gentleman, and Greek literature and learning were very properly preferred to Latin. In this miscellaneous empire, the ways of doing work and business were naturally also very miscellaneous. The chief industry of the settled world was still largely agriculture. We have told how in Italy the sturdy free farmers, who were the backbone of the early Roman Republic, were replaced by estates worked by slave labor after the Punic Wars. The Greek world had had very various methods of cultivation, from the Arcadian plan, wherein every free citizen toiled with his own hands, to Sparta, wherein it was a dishonor to work, and where agricultural work was done by a special slave class, the Helots. But that was ancient history now, and over most of the Hellenized world, the estate system and slave gangs had spread. The agricultural slaves were captives who spoke many different languages, so that they could not understand each other, or they were born slaves. They had no solidarity to resist oppression, 
no tradition of rites, no knowledge, for they could not read or nor write. Although they came, too, from a majority of the country population, they never made a successful insurrection. The insurrection of Spartacus in the first century B.C. was an insurrection of the special slaves, who were trained for the gladiatorial combats. The agricultural workers in Italy in the latter days of the Republic and the early Empire suffered frightful indignities. They would be chained at night to prevent escape, or have half the head shaved to make it difficult. They had no wives of their own. They could be outraged, mutilated, and killed by their masters. A master could sell his slave to fight beasts in the arena. If a slave slew his master, all the slaves in his household, and not merely the murderer, were crucified. In some parts of Greece, in Athens notably, the lot of the slave was never quite so frightful as this, but it was still detestable. To such a population, the barbarian invaders who presently broke through the defensive line of the legions came not as an enemies, but as liberators. The slave system had spread to most industries and to every sort of work that could be done by gangs. Mines and metallurgical operations, the rowing of galleys, road-making and big-building operations, were all largely slave occupations, and almost all domestic service was performed by slaves. There were poor freemen, and there were freedmen in the cities and upon the countryside, working for themselves or even working for wages. They were artisans, supervisors, and so forth, workers of a new money-paid class, working in competition with slave workers. But we do not know what proportion they made of the general population. It probably varied widely in different places and at different periods. And there were also many modifications of slavery, from the slavery that was chained at night and driven with whips to the farm or quarry, to the slave, whose master found it advantageous to leave him to cultivate his patch or work his craft, and own his wife like a free man, provided he paid in a satisfactory quittance to his owner. There were armed slaves. At the opening of the period of the Punic Wars, in 264 B.C., the Etruscan sport of setting slaves to fight for their lives was revived in Rome. It grew rapidly fashionable, and soon every great Roman rich man kept a retinue of gladiators, who sometimes fought in the arena, but whose real business it was to act as his bodyguard of bullies. And also there were learned slaves. The conquests of the later Republic were among the highly civilized cities of Greece, North Africa and Asia Minor, and they brought in many highly educated captives. The tutor of a young Roman of good family was usually a slave. A rich man would have a Greek slave as librarian, and slave secretaries and learned men. He would keep his poet as he would keep a performing dog. In this atmosphere of slavery, the traditions of modern literary criticism were evolved. The slaves still boast and quarrel in our reviews. There were enterprising people who bought intelligent boy slaves and had them educated for sale. Slaves were trained as book copyists, as jewelers, and for endless skilled callings. 
but there were very considerable changes in the position of a slave during the four hundred years between the opening days of conquest under the republic of rich men and the days of disintegration that followed the great pestilence in the second century b c war captives were abundant manners gross and brutal the slave had no rights and there was scarcely an outrage the reader can imagine that was not practised upon slaves in those days but already in the first century a d there was a perceptible improvement in the attitude of the roman civilization towards slavery captives were not so abundant for one thing and slaves were dearer and slave owners began to realize that the profit and comfort they got from their slaves increased with the self-respect of these unfortunates but also the moral tone of the community was rising and a sense of justice was becoming effective the higher mentality of greece was qualifying the old roman harshness restrictions upon cruelty were made a master might no longer sell his slave to fight beasts a slave was given property rights in what was called his peculium slaves were paid wages as an encouragement and stimulus a form of slave marriage was recognized very many forms of agriculture do not lend themselves to gang working or require gang workers only at certain seasons in regions where such conditions prevailed the slave presently became a serf paying his owner part of his produce or working for him at certain seasons when we begin to realize how essentially this great latin and greek-speaking roman empire of the first two centuries a d was a slave state and how small was the minority who had any pride or freedom in their lives we lay our hands on the clues to its decay and collapse there was little of what we should call family life few homes of temperate living and active thought and study schools and colleges were few and far between the free will and the free mind were nowhere to be found the great roads the ruins of splendid buildings the tradition of law and power it left for the astonishment of succeeding generations must not conceal from us that all its outer splendor was built upon thwarted wills stifled intelligence and crippled and perverted desires and even the minority who lorded it over that wide realm of subjugation and of restraint and forced labor were uneasy and unhappy in their souls art and literature science and philosophy which are the fruits of free and happy minds waned in that atmosphere there was much copying and imitation an abundance of artistic artificers much slavish pedantry among the servile men of learning but the whole roman empire in four centuries produced nothing to set beside the bold and noble intellectual activities of the comparatively little city of athens during its one century of greatness athens decayed under the roman sceptre the science of alexandria decayed the spirit of man it seemed was decaying in those days end of chapter 35 Chapter thirty six of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells.
Religious Developments Under the Roman Empire The soul of man under the Latin and Greek empire of the first two centuries of the Christian era was a worried and frustrated soul. Compulsion and cruelty reigned. There were pride and display, but little honor, little serenity, or steadfast happiness. The unfortunate were despised and wretched. The fortunate were insecure and feverishly eager for gratifications. In a great number of cities life centered on the red excitement of the arena, where men and beasts fought and were tormented and slain. Amphitheaters are the most characteristic of Roman ruins. Life went on in that key. The uneasiness of men's hearts manifested itself in profound religious unrest. From the days when the Aryan hordes first broke in upon the ancient civilizations, it was inevitable that the old gods of the temples and priesthoods should suffer great adaptations or disappear. In the course of hundreds of generations, the agricultural peoples of the brunette civilizations had shaped their lives and thoughts to the temple-centered life. Observances and the fear of disturbed routines, sacrifices and mysteries, dominated their minds. Their gods seem monstrous and illogical to our modern minds, because we belong to an Aryanized world. But to these older peoples, these deities had the immediate conviction and vividness of things seen in an intense dream. The conquest of one city-state by another in Sumeria or early Egypt meant a change, or a renaming of gods and goddesses, but left the shape and spirit of the worship intact. There was no change in its general character. The figures in the dream changed, but the dream went on, and it was the same sort of dream. And the early Semitic conquerors were sufficiently akin in spirit to the Sumerians to take over the religion of the Mesopotamian civilization they subjugated without any profound alteration. Egypt was never indeed subjugated to the extent of a religious revolution. Under the Ptolemies and under the Caesars, her temples and altars and priesthoods remained essentially Egyptian. So long as conquests went on between people of similar social and religious habits, it was possible to get over the clash between the god of this temple and region and the god of that by a process of grouping or assimilation. If the two gods were alike in character, they were identified. It was really the same god under another name, said the priests and the people. This fusion of gods is called Theocracia, and the age of the great conquests of the thousand years B.C. was an age of Theocracia. Over wide areas the local gods were displaced by, or rather they were swallowed up in, a general god. So that when at last Hebrew prophets in Babylon proclaimed one god of righteousness in all the earth, men's minds were fully prepared for that idea. But often the gods were too dissimilar for such an assimilation, and then they were grouped together in some plausible relationship, a female god, and the Aegean world, before the coming of the Greek, was much addicted to mother gods, would be married to a male god, and an animal god or a star god would be humanized, and the animal or astronomical aspect, 
the serpent under the sun or the star made into an ornament or a symbol or the god of a defeated people would become a malignant antagonist to the brighter gods the history of theology is full of such adaptations compromises and rationalizations of once local gods as egypt developed from city-states into one united kingdom there was much of this theocratia the chief god so to speak was osiris a sacrificial harvest god of whom pharaoh was supposed to be the earthly incarnation osiris was represented as repeatedly dying and rising again he was not only the seed and the harvest but also by a natural extension of thought the means of human immortality among his symbols was the wide-winged scarabius beetle which buries its eggs to rise again and also the effulgent sun which sets to rise later on he was to be identified with apis the sacred bull associated with him was the goddess isis isis was also hathor a cow goddess and the crescent moon and the star of the sea osiris dies and she bears a child horus who is also a hawk god and the dawn and who grows to become osiris again the effigies of isis represents her as bearing the infant horus in her arms and standing on the crescent moon these are not logical relationships but they are devised by the human mind before the development of hard and systematic thinking and they have a dreamlike coherence beneath this triple group there are other and darker egyptian gods bad gods the dog-headed anubis black knight and the like devourers tempters enemies of god and man every religious system does in the course of time fit itself to the shape of the human soul and there can be no doubt that out of these illogical and even uncouth symbols egyptian people were able to fashion for themselves ways of genuine devotion and consolation the desire for immortality was very strong in the egyptian mind and the religious life of egypt turned on that desire the egyptian religion was an immortality religion as no other religion had ever been as egypt went down under foreign conquerors and the egyptian gods ceased to have any satisfactory political significance the craving for a life of compensations hereafter intensified after the greek conquest the new city of alexandria became the center of egyptian religious life and indeed of the religious life of the whole hellenic world a great temple the serapeum was set up by ptolemy i at which a sort of trinity of gods was worshipped these were serapes who was osiris apis rechristened isis and horus these were not regarded as separate gods but as three aspects of one god and serapes was identified with the greek zeus the roman jupiter and the persian sun god this worship spread wherever the hellenic influence extended even into north india and western china the idea of immortality an immortality of compensations and consolation was eagerly received by a world in which 
the common life was hopelessly wretched. Serapis was called the savior of souls. After death, said the hymns of that time, we are still in the care of his providence. Isis attracted many devotees. Her images stood in her temples as queen of heaven, bearing the infant horse in her arms. Candles were burned before her. Votive offerings were made to her. Shaven priests consecrated to celibacy waited on her altar. The rise of the Roman Empire opened the Western European world to this growing cult. The temples of Serapis Isis, the chanting of the priests and the hope of immortal life, followed the Roman standards to Scotland and Holland. But there were many rivals to the Serapis Isis religion. Prominent among these was Mithraism. This was a religion of Persian origin, and it centered upon some now-forgotten mysteries about Mithras sacrificing a sacred and benevolent bull. Here we seem to have something more primordial than the complicated and sophisticated Serapis Isis beliefs. We are carried back directly to the blood sacrifices of the Heliolithic stage in human culture. The bull upon the Mithraic monuments always bleeds copiously from a wound in its side, and from this blood springs new life. The votary to Mithraism actually bathed in the blood of the sacrificial bull. At his initiation he went beneath a scaffolding, upon which a bull was killed, so that the blood could actually run down on him. Both these religions, and the same is true of many other of the numerous parallel cults that sought the allegiance of the slaves and citizens under the earlier Roman emperors, are personal religions. They aim at personal salvation and personal immortality. The older religions were not personal like that. They were social. The older fashion of divinity was god or goddess of the city, first, or of the state, and only secondarily of the individual. The sacrifices were a public and not a private function. They concerned collective, practical needs in this world in which we live. But the Greeks first, and now the Romans, had pushed religion out of politics. Guided by the Egyptian tradition, religion had retreated to the other world. Those new private immortality religions took all the heart and emotion out of the old state religions, but they did not actually replace them. A typical city under the earlier Roman emperors would have a number of temples to all sorts of gods, there might be a temple to Jupiter of the capital, the great god of Rome, and there would be probably one to the reigning Caesar. For the Caesars had learned from the pharaohs the possibility of being gods. In such temples, a cold and stately political worship went on. One would go and make an offering and burn a pinch of incense to show one's loyalty. But it would be to the temple of Isis, the dear queen of heaven, one would go with the burthen of one's private troubles for advice and relief. There might be local and eccentric gods. Seville, for example, long affected the worship of the old Carthaginian Venus. In a cave or an underground temple, there would certainly be an altar to Mithras, attended by legionaries and slaves. 
and probably also there would be a synagogue where the Jews gathered to read their Bible and uphold their faith in the unseen God of all the earth. Sometimes there would be trouble with the Jews about the political side of the state religion. They held that their God was a jealous God, intolerant of idolatry, and they would refuse to take part in the public sacrifices to Caesar. They would not even salute the Roman standards for fear of idolatry. In the East, long before the time of Buddha, there had been ascetics, men and women who gave up most of the delights of life, who repudiated marriage and property, and sought spiritual powers and an escape from the stresses and mortifications of the world in abstinence, pain, and solitude. Buddha himself set his face against ascetic extravagances, but many of his disciples followed a monkish life of great severity. Obscure Greek cults practiced similar disciplines, even to the extent of self-mutilation. Asceticism appeared in the Jewish communities of Judea and Alexandria, also in the first century B.C. Communities of men abandoned the world and gave themselves to austerities and mystical contemplation. Such was the sect of the Essenes. Throughout the first and second centuries A.D., there was an almost worldwide resort to such repudiations of life, a universal search for salvation from the distresses of the time. The old sense of an established order, the old confidence in priest and temple, and law and custom had gone. Amidst the prevailing slavery, cruelty, fear, anxiety, waste, display, and hectic self-indulgence, went this epidemic of self-disgust and mental insecurity, this agonized search for peace, even at the price of renunciation and voluntary suffering. This it was that filled the Serapium with weeping penitence, and brought the converts into the gloom and gore of the Mithraic cave. End of chapter 36 Chapter 37 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells The Teaching of Jesus It was while August Caesar, the first of the emperors, was reigning in Rome, that Jesus, who is the Christ of Christianity, was born in Judea. In his name a religion was to arise, which was destined to become the official religion of the entire Roman Empire. Now it is, on the whole, more convenient to keep history and theology apart. A large proportion of the Christian world believes that Jesus was an incarnation of that God of all the earth whom the Jews first recognized. The historian, if he is to remain historian, can neither accept nor deny that interpretation. Materially Jesus appeared in the likeness of a man, and it is as a man that the historian must deal with him. He appeared in Judea in the reign of Tiberius Caesar. He was a prophet. He preached after the fashion of the preceding Jewish prophets. He was a man of about thirty, and we are in the profoundest ignorance of his manner of life before his preaching began. Our only direct sources of information about the life and teachings of Jesus are the four Gospels. All four agree in giving us a picture of a very definite personality, 
one is obliged to say, here was a man, this could not have been invented. But just as the personality of Gautama Buddha has been distorted and obscured by the stiff, squatting figure, the gilded idol of later Buddhism, so one feels that the lean and strenuous personality of Jesus is much wronged by the unreality and conventionality that a mistaken reverence has imposed upon his figure in modern Christian art. Jesus was a penniless teacher who wandered about the dusty sun-bit country of Judea, living upon casual gifts of food, yet he is always represented clean, combed and sleek, in spotless raiment, erect and with something motionless about him, as though he was gliding through the air. This alone has made him unreal and incredible to many people, who cannot distinguish the core of the story from the ornamental and unwise additions of the unintelligently devout. We are left, if we do strip this record of these difficult accessories, with a figure of a being, very human, very earnest and passionate, capable of swift anger and teaching a new and simple and profound doctrine, namely, the universal loving fatherhood of God and the coming of the kingdom of heaven. He was clearly a person, to use a common phrase, of intense personal magnetism. He attracted followers and filled them with love and courage. Weak and ailing people were heartened and healed by his presence. Yet he was probably of a delicate physique because of the swiftness with which he died under the pains of crucifixion. There is a tradition that he fainted when, according to the custom, he was made to bear his cross to the place of execution. He went about the country for three years, spreading his doctrine, and then he came to Jerusalem, and was accused of trying to set up a strange kingdom in Judea. He was tried upon this charge, and crucified together with two thieves. Long before these two were dead, his sufferings were over. The doctrine of the kingdom of heaven, which was the main teaching of Jesus, is certainly one of the most revolutionary doctrines that ever stirred and changed human thought. It is small wonder if the world of that time failed to grasp its full significance and recoiled in dismay from even a half apprehension of its tremendous challenges to the established habits and institutions of mankind. For the doctrine of the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus seems to have preached it, was no less than a bold and uncompromising demand for a complete change and cleansing of the life of our struggling race, an utter cleansing without and within. To the Gospels the reader must go for all that is preserved of this tremendous teaching. Here we are only concerned with the jar of its impact upon established ideas. The Jews were persuaded that God, the one God of the whole world, was a righteous God, but they also thought of him as a trading God, who had made a bargain with their father Abraham about them, a very good bargain indeed for them, to bring them at last to predominance in the earth. With dismay and anger they heard Jesus sweeping away their dear securities. God, he taught, was no bargainer. There were no chosen people and no favorites in the kingdom of heaven. 
God was the loving father of all life, as incapable of showing favor as the universal son. And all men were brothers, sinners alike and beloved sons alike, of this divine father. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus cast scorn upon the natural tendency we all obey to glorify our own people and to minimize the righteousness of other creeds and other races. In the parable of the laborers, he thrust aside the obstinate claim of the Jews to have a special claim upon God. All whom God takes into the kingdom, he taught, God serves alike. There is no distinction in his treatment, because there is no measure to his bounty. From all, moreover, as the parable of the buried talent witnesses, and as the incident of the widow's might and forces, he demands the utmost. There are no privileges, no rabbits, and no excuses in the kingdom of heaven. But it is not only the intense tribal patriotism of the Jews that Jesus outraged. They were a people of intense family loyalty, and he would have swept away all the narrow and restrictive family affections in the great flood of the love of God. The whole kingdom of heaven was to be the family of his followers. We are told that, while he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hands towards his disciples, and said, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in the heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. And not only did Jesus strike at patriotism and the bonds of family loyalty in the name of God's universal fatherhood and brotherhood of all mankind, but it is clear that his teaching condemned all the gradations of the economic system, all private wealth and personal advantages. All men belonged to the kingdom. All their possessions belonged to the kingdom. The righteous life for all men, the only righteous life, was the service of God's will with all that we had, with all that we were. And again and again he denounced private riches and the reservation of any private life. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running, and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do, that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus beholding him loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again, and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them 
that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Moreover, in his tremendous prophecy for this kingdom, which was to make all men one together in God, Jesus had small patience for the bargaining righteousness of formal religion. Another large part of his recorded utterances is aimed against the meticulous observance of the rules of the pious career. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered them and said unto them, Well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching from doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. It was not merely a moral and a social revolution that Jesus proclaimed. It is clear from a score of indications that his teaching had a political bent of the plainest sort. It is true that he said his kingdom was not of this world, that it was in the hearts of men and not upon a throne. But it is equally clear that wherever and in what measure his kingdom was set up in the hearts of men, the outer world would be in that measure revolutionized and made anew. Whatever else the deafness and blindness of his hearers may have missed in his utterances, it is plain they did not miss his resolve to revolutionize the world. The whole tenor of the opposition to him and the circumstances of his trial and execution show clearly that to his contemporaries he seemed to propose plainly, and did propose plainly, to change and fuse and enlarge all human life. In view of what he plainly said, is it any wonder that all who were rich and prosperous felt a horror of strange things, a swimming of their world at his teaching? He was dragging out all the little private reservations they had made from social service into the light of a universal religious life. He was like some terrible moral huntsman, digging mankind out of the snug burrows in which they had lived hitherto. In the white blaze of this kingdom of his, there was to be no property, no privilege, no pride and precedence, no motive indeed and no reward but love. Is it any wonder that men were dazzled and blinded and cried out against him? Even his disciples cried out when he would not spare them the light. Is it any wonder that the priests realized that between this man and themselves there was no choice but that he, or priestcraft, should perish? Is it any wonder that the Roman soldiers, confronted and amazed by something soaring over their comprehension and threatening all their disciplines, should take refuge in wild laughter and crown him with thorns and robe him in purple and make a mock Caesar of him? For to take him seriously was to enter upon a strange and alarming life, to abandon habits, to control instincts and impulses, to essay an incredible happiness. 
End of chapter 37 Chapter 38 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells The Development of Doctrinal Christianity In the four Gospels we find the personality and teachings of Jesus, but very little of the dogmas of the Christian Church. It is in the Epistles, a series of writings by the immediate followers of Jesus, that the broad lines of Christian belief are laid down. Chief among the makers of Christian doctrine was St. Paul. He had never seen Jesus nor heard him preach. Paul's name was originally Saul, and he was conspicuous at first, as an active persecutor of the little band of disciples after the crucifixion. Then he was suddenly converted to Christianity, and he changed his name to Paul. He was a man of great intellectual vigor and deeply and passionately interested in the religious movements of the time. He was well versed in Judaism and in the Mithraism and Alexandrian religion of the day. He carried over many of their ideas and terms of expression into Christianity. He did very little to enlarge or develop the original teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the kingdom of heaven. But he taught that Jesus was not only the promised Christ, the promised leader of the Jews, but also that his death was a sacrifice, like the death of the ancient sacrificial victims of the primordial civilizations, for the redemption of mankind. When religions flourish side by side, they tend to pick up each other's ceremonial and other outward peculiarities. Buddhism, for example, in China, has now almost the same sort of temples and priests and uses as Taoism, which follows in the teachings of Lao Tse. Yet, the original teachings of Buddhism and Taoism were almost flatly opposed, and it reflects no doubt or discredit upon the essentials of Christian teaching that it took over not merely such formal things as the shaven priest, the votive offering, the altars, candles, chanting and images of the Alexandrian and Mithraic faiths, but adopted even their devotional phrases and their theological ideas. All these religions were flourishing side by side with many less prominent cults. Each was seeking adherence, and there must have been a constant going and coming of converts between them. Sometimes one or other would be in favor with the government. But Christianity was regarded with more suspicion than its rivals, because, like the Jews, its adherents would not perform acts of worship to the god Caesar. This made it a seditious religion, quite apart from the revolutionary spirit of the teachings of Jesus himself. St. Paul familiarized his disciples with the idea that Jesus, like Osiris, was a god who died to rise again and give men immortality. And presently the spreading Christian community was greatly torn by complicated theological disputes about the relationship of this god Jesus, about the relationship of this god Jesus to God, the father of mankind. The Arians taught that Jesus was divine, but distant from and inferior to the Father. The Sabellians taught that Jesus was merely an aspect of the Father, and that God was Jesus and Father at the same time, just as a man may be a father and an artificer at the same time. 
and the Trinitarians taught a more subtle doctrine that God was both one and three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For a time it seemed that Arianism would prevail over its rivals, and then, after disputes, violence, and wars, the Trinitarian formula became the accepted formula of all Christendom. It may be found in its completest expression in the Athanasian Creed. We offer no comment on these controversies here. They do not sway history as the personal teaching of Jesus sways history. The personal teaching of Jesus does seem to mark a new phase in the moral and spiritual life of our race. Its insistence upon the universal fatherhood of God and the implicit brotherhood of all men, its insistence upon the sacredness of every human personality as a living temple of God, was to have the profoundest effect upon all the subsequent social and political life of mankind. With Christianity, with the spreading teachings of Jesus, a new respect appears in the world for man as man. It may be true, as hostile critics of Christianity have urged, that St. Paul preached obedience to slaves, but it is equally true that the whole spirit of the teachings of Jesus, preserved in the Gospels, was against the subjugation of man by man. And still more distinctly was Christianity opposed to such outrages upon human dignity as the gladiatorial combats in the arena. Throughout the first two centuries after Christ, the Christian religion spread throughout the Roman Empire, weaving together an ever-growing multitude of converts into a new community of ideas and will. The attitude of the emperors varied between hostility and toleration. There were attempts to suppress this new faith in both the second and third centuries, and finally in 303 and the following years, a great persecution under the emperor Diocletian. The considerable accumulations of church property were seized, all Bibles and religious writings were confiscated and destroyed. Christians were put out of the protection of the law, and many executed. The destruction of the books is particularly notable. It shows how the power of the written word in holding together the new faith was appreciated by the authorities. These book religions, Christianity and Judaism, were religions that educated. Their continued existence depended very largely on people being able to read and understand their doctrinal ideas. The older religions had made no such appeal to the personal intelligence. In the ages of barbaric confusion that were now at hand in Western Europe, it was the Christian Church that was mainly instrumental in preserving the tradition of learning. The persecution of Diocletian failed completely to suppress the growing Christian community. In many provinces it was ineffective, because the bulk of the population and many of the officials were Christian. In 317, an edict of toleration was issued by the associated Emperor Galerius, and in 324, Constantine the Great, a friend, and on his deathbed a baptized convert to Christianity, became sole ruler of the Roman world. He abandoned all divine pretensions and put Christian symbols on the shields and banners of his troops. In a few years, Christianity, 
was securely established as the official religion of the empire. The competing religions disappeared, or were absorbed with extraordinary celerity, and in 300 Theodosius the Great caused the great statue of Jupiter Serapis at Alexandria to be destroyed. From the outset of the 5th century onward, the only priests or temples in the Roman Empire were Christian priests and temples. End of chapter 38 Chapter 39 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells the barbarians break the empire into east and west. Throughout the third century, the Roman Empire, decaying socially and disintegrating morally, faced the barbarians. The emperors of this period were fighting military autocrats, and the capital of the empire shifted with the necessities of their military policy. Now the imperial headquarters would be at Milan, in North Italy, now in what is now Serbia at Sirmum or Nish, now in Nicomedia in Asia Minor. Rome, halfway down Italy, was too far from the centre of interest to be a convenient imperial seat. It was a declining city. Over most of the empire peace still prevailed, and men went without arms. The armies continued to be the sole repositories of power. The emperors, dependent on their legions, became more and more autocratic to the rest of the empire, and their state more and more like that of the Persian and other oriental monarchs. Diocletian assumed a royal diadem and oriental robes. All along the imperial frontier, which ran roughly along the Rhine and Danube, enemies were now pressing. The Franks and other German tribes had come up to the Rhine. In North Hungary were the Vandals, in what was once Dacia and is now Romania, the Visigoths or West Goths. Behind these in South Russia were the East Goths or Ostrogoths, and beyond these again in the Volga region the Alans. But now Mongolian peoples were forcing their way towards Europe. The Huns were already exacting tribute from the Alans and Ostrogoths and pushing them to the west. In Asia, the Roman frontiers were crumpling back under the push of a renaissance Persia. This new Persia, the Persia of the Sassanid kings, was to be a vigorous, and on the whole, a successful rival of the Roman Empire in Asia for the next three centuries. A glance at the map of Europe will show the reader the peculiar weakness of the empire. The river Danube comes down to within a couple of hundred miles of the Adriatic Sea, in the region of what is now Bosnia and Serbia. It makes a square re-entrant angle there. The Romans never kept their sea communication in good order, and this 200-mile strip of land was their line of communication between the western, Latin-speaking part of the empire and the eastern, Greek-speaking portion. Against this square angle of the Danube, the barbarian pressure was greatest. When they broke through, there, it was inevitable that the empire should fall into two parts. A more vigorous empire might have thrust forward and reconquered Dacia, but the Roman Empire lacked any such vigor. Constantine the Great was certainly a monarch of great devotion and intelligence, 
he beat back a raid of the Goths from just these vital Balkan regions, but he had no force to carry the frontier across the Danube. He was too preoccupied with the internal weaknesses of the empire. He brought the solidarity and moral force of Christianity to revive the spirit of the declining empire, and he decided to create a new permanent capital at Byzantium upon the Hellespont. This new-made Byzantium, which was rechristened Constantinople in his honor, was still building when he died. Towards the end of his reign occurred a remarkable transaction. The Vandals, being pressed by the Goths, asked to be received into the Roman Empire. They were assigned lands in Pannonia, which is now that part of Hungary west of the Danube, and their fighting men became nominally legionaries. But these new legionaries remained under their own chiefs. Rome failed to digest them. Constantine died working to reorganize his great realm, and soon the frontiers were ruptured again, and the Visigoths came almost to Constantinople. They defeated the Emperor Valens at Adrianople, and made a settlement in what is now Bulgaria, similar to the settlement of the Vandals in Pannonia. Nominally, they were subjects of the Emperor. Practically, they were conquerors. From 379 to 395 A.D. reigned the Emperor Theodosius the Great, and while he reigned, the empire was still formally intact. Over the armies of Italy and Pannonia presided Stilicho, a Vandal. Over the armies in the Balkan peninsula, Alaric, a Goth. When Theodosius died at the close of the 4th century, he left two sons. Alaric supported one of these, Arcadius, in Constantinople, and Stilicho, the other, Honorius, in Italy. In other words, Alaric and Stilicho fought for the empire, with the princes as puppets. In the course of their struggle, Alaric marched into Italy, and after a short siege, took Rome, 410 A.D. The opening half of the 5th century saw the whole of the Roman Empire in Europe, the prey of robber armies of barbarians. It is difficult to visualize the state of affairs in the world at that time. Over France, Spain, Italy, and the Balkan Peninsula, the great cities that had flourished under the early empire still stood, impoverished, partly depopulated, and falling into decay. Life in them must have been shallow, mean, and full of uncertainty. Local officials asserted their authority and went on with their work, with such conscience as they had, now doubt in the name of the now remote and inaccessible emperor. The churches went on, but usually with illiterate priests. There was little reading and much superstition and fear, but everywhere except where looters had destroyed them, books and pictures and statuary and such like works of art were still to be found. The life of the countryside had also degenerated. Everywhere this Roman world was much more weedy and untidy than it had been. In some regions war and pestilence had brought the land down to a level of a waste. Roads and forests were infested with robbers. Into such regions barbarians marched, with little or no opposition, and set up their chiefs as rulers, often with Roman official titles. 
if they were half-civilized barbarians, they would give the conquered districts tolerable terms, they would take possession of the towns, associate and intermarry, and acquire, with an accent, the Latin speech. But the Jutes, the Angles and Saxons who submerged the Roman province of Britain, were agriculturalists and had no use for towns. They seem to have swept South Britain clear of the Romanized population, and they replaced the language by their own Teutonic dialects, which became at last English. It is impossible in the space at our disposal to trace the movements of all the various German and Slavonic tribes as they went to and fro in the disorganized empire in search of plunder and a pleasant home. But let the Vandals serve as an example. They came into history in East Germany. They settled, as we have told, in Pannonia. Thence they moved somewhere about 425 A.D. through the intervening provinces to Spain. There they found Visigoths from South Russia and other German tribes setting up dukes and kings. From Spain, the Vandals under Genseric sailed for North Africa. 429, captured Carthage, 439, and built a fleet. They secured the mastery of the sea, and captured and pillaged Rome, 455, which had recovered very imperfectly from her capture and looting by Alaric half a century earlier. Then the Vandals made themselves masters of Sicily, Corsica, Sardinia, and most of the other islands of the western Mediterranean, they made, in fact, a sea empire, very similar in its extent, to the sea empire of Carthage seven hundred odd years before. They were at the climax of their power about 477. They were a mere handful of conquerors holding all this country. In the next century, almost all their territory had been reconquered for the empire of Constantinople, during a transitory blaze of energy under Justinian I. The story of the Vandals is but one sample of a host of similar adventures. But now there was coming into the European world the least kindred and most redoubtable of all these devastators, the Mongolian Huns or Tartars, a yellow people, active and able, such as the Western world had never before encountered. End of chapter 39 Chapter 40 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells The Huns and the End of the Western Empire This appearance of a conquering Mongolian people in Europe may be taken to mark a new stage in human history. Until the last century or so before the Christian era, the Mongol and the Nordic peoples had not been in close touch. Far away in the frozen lands beyond the northern forests, the Laps, a Mongolian people, had drifted westward as far as Lapland, but they played no part in the main current of history. For thousands of years, the Western world carried on the dramatic interplay of the Aryan, Semitic, and fundamental brunette peoples with very little interference, except for an Ethiopian invasion of Egypt or so, either from the black peoples to the south, or from the Mongolian world in the far east. It is probable 
that there were two chief causes for the new westward drift of the nomadic Mongolians. One was the consolidation of the great empire of China, its extension northward, and the increase of its population during the prosperous period of the Han dynasty. The other was some process of climatic change, a lesser rainfall that abolished swamps and forests perhaps, or a greater rainfall that extended grazing over desert steppes, or even perhaps both these processes going on in different regions, but which anyhow facilitated a westward migration. A third contributory cause was the economic wretchedness, internal decay, and falling population of the Roman Empire. The rich men of the later Roman Republic, and then the tax-gatherers of the military emperors, had utterly consumed its vitality. So we have the factors of thrust, means, and opportunity. There was pressure from the east, rot in the west, and an open road. The Hun had reached the eastern boundaries of European Russia by the first century A.D., but it was not until the 4th and 5th centuries A.D. that these horsemen rose to predominance upon the steppes. The 5th century was the Hans' century. The first Hans to come into Italy were mercenary bands in the pay of Stilicho the Vandal, the master of Honorius. Presently they were in possession of Pannonia, the empty nest of the Vandals. By the second quarter of the 5th century, a great war-chief had arisen among the Huns, Attila. We have only vague and tantalizing glimpses of his power. He ruled not only over the Huns, but over a conglomerate of tributary Germanic tribes. His empire extended from the Rhine, crossed the plains into Central Asia. He exchanged ambassadors with China. His head camp was in the plain of Hungary east of the Danube. There he was visited by an envoy from Constantinople, Priscus, who has left us an account of his state. The way of living of these Mongols was very like the way of living of the primitive Aryans they had replaced. The common folk were in huts and tents. The chiefs lived in great stockaded timber halls. There were feasts and drinking and singing by the bards. The Homeric heroes and even the Macedonian companions of Alexander would probably have felt more at home in the camp capital of Attila than they would have done in the cultivated and decadent court of Theodosius II, the son of Arcadius, who was then reigning in Constantinople. For a time it seemed as though the nomads under the leadership of the Huns and Attila would play the same part towards the Greek or Roman civilization of the Mediterranean countries that the barbaric Greeks had played long ago to the Aegean civilization. It looked like history repeating itself upon a larger stage. But the Huns were much more wedded to the nomadic life than the early Greeks, who were rather migratory cattle farmers than true nomads. The Huns raided and plundered, but did not settle. For some years Attila bullied Theodosius as he chose. His armies devastated and looted right down to the walls of Constantinople. Gibbon says 
that he totally destroyed no less than seventy cities in the Balkan Peninsula, and Theodosius bought him off by payments of tribute, and tried to get rid of him for good by sending secret agents to assassinate him. In 451, Attila turned his attention to the remains of the Latin-speaking half of the empire, and invaded Gaul. Nearly every town in northern Gaul was sacked. Franks, Visigoths, and the imperial forces united against him, and he was defeated at Troyes in a vast dispersed battle, in which a multitude of men, variously estimated as between 150,000 and 300,000, were killed. This checked him in Gaul, but it did not exhaust his enormous military resources. Next year he came into Italy by way of Venetia, burnt Aquileia and Padua, and looted Milan. Numbers of fugitives from these North Italian towns, and particularly from Padua, fled to islands in the lagoons at the head of the Adriatic, and laid there the foundations of the city-state of Venice, which was to become one of the greatest of the trading centers in the Middle Ages. In 453, Attila died suddenly, after a great feast, to celebrate his marriage to a young woman, and at his death this plunder confederation of his fell to pieces. The actual Huns disappear from history, mixed into the surrounding more numerous Aryan-speaking populations. But these great Hun raids practically consummated the end of the Latin Roman Empire. After his death, Ten different emperors ruled in Rome in twenty years, set up by Vandal and other mercenary troops. The Vandals from Carthage took and sacked Rome in 455. Finally, in 476, Otto Eicher, the chief of the barbarian troops, suppressed a Pannonian, who was figuring as emperor under the impressive name of Romulus Augustulus, and informed the court of Constantinople, that there was no longer an emperor in the West. So ingloriously the Latin Roman Empire came to an end. In 493, Theodoric the Goth became king of Rome. All over Western and Central Europe, now barbarian chiefs were reigning as kings, dukes and the like, practically independent, but for the most part professing some sort of shadowy allegiance to the emperor. There were hundreds and perhaps thousands of such practically independent brigand rulers in Gaul, Spain, and Italy, and in Dacia, the Latin speech still prevailed in locally distorted forms, but in Britain and east of the Rhine, languages of the German group, or in Bohemia a Slavonic language Czech, were the common speech. The superior clergy and a small remnant of other educated men read and wrote Latin. Everywhere life was insecure, and property was held by the strong arm. Castles multiplied and roads fell into decay. The dawn of the sixth century was an age of division and of intellectual darkness throughout the Western world. Had it not been for the monks and Christian missionaries, Latin learning might have perished altogether. Why had the Roman Empire grown, and why had it so completely decayed? It grew 
because at first the idea of citizenship held it together. Throughout the days of the expanding republic, and even into the days of the early empire, there remained a great number of men, conscious of Roman citizenship, feeling it a privilege and an obligation to be a Roman citizen, confident of their rights under the Roman law, and willing to make sacrifices in the name of Rome. The prestige of Rome, as of something just and great, and law-upholding, spread far beyond the Roman boundaries. But even as early as the Punic Wars, the sense of citizenship was being undermined by the growth of wealth and slavery. Citizenship spread indeed, but not the idea of citizenship. The Roman Empire was after all a very primitive organization. It did not educate, did not explain itself to its increasing multitudes of citizens, did not invite their cooperation in its decisions. There was no network of schools to ensure a common understanding, no distribution of news to sustain collective activity. The adventurers who struggled for power from the days of Marius and Sulla onward had no idea of creating and calling in public opinion upon the imperial affairs. The spirit of citizenship died of starvation, and no one observed it die. All empires, all states, all organizations of human society are, in the ultimate, things of understanding and will. There remained no will for the Roman Empire in the world, and so it came to an end. But though the Latin-speaking Roman Empire died in the 5th century, something else had been born within it that was to avail itself enormously of its prestige and tradition, and that was the Latin-speaking half of the Catholic Church. This lived while the Empire died, because it appealed to the minds and wills of men, because it had books and a great system of teachers and missionaries, to hold it together, things stronger than any law or legions. Throughout the 4th and 5th centuries AD, while the empire was decaying, Christianity was spreading to a universal dominion in Europe. It conquered its conquerors, the barbarians. When Attila seemed disposed to march on Rome, the Patriarch of Rome intercepted him and did what no armies could do turning him back by sheer moral force. The patriarch or pope of Rome claimed to be the head of the entire Christian church. Now that there were no more emperors, he began to annex imperial titles and claims. He took the title of Pontifex Maximus, head sacrificial priest of the Roman dominion, the most ancient of all the titles that the emperors had enjoyed. End of chapter 14 Chapter 41 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells The Byzantine and Sassanid Empires The Greek-speaking eastern half of the Roman Empire showed much more political tenacity than the western half. It weathered the disasters of the 5th century A.D., which saw a complete and final breaking up of the original Latin Roman power. Attila bullied the Emperor Theodosius II 
and sacked and raided almost to the walls of Constantinople, but that city remained intact. The Nubians came down the Nile and looted Upper Egypt, but Lower Egypt and Alexandria were left still fairly prosperous. Most of Asia Minor was held against the Sassanid Persians. The sixth century, which was an age of complete darkness for the West, saw indeed a considerable revival of the Greek power. Justinian I, 527 to 565, was a ruler of very great ambition and energy, and he was married to the Empress Theodora, a woman of quite equal capacity, who had begun life as an actress. Justinian reconquered North Africa from the Vandals and most of Italy from the Goths. He even regained the south of Spain. He did not limit his energies to naval and military enterprises. He founded a university, built the great church of St. Sophia in Constantinople, and codified the Roman law. But in order to destroy a rival to his university foundation, he closed the schools of philosophy in Athens, which had been going on in unbroken continuity from the days of Plato, that is to say, for nearly a thousand years. From the third century onwards, the Persian Empire had been the steadfast rival of the Byzantine. The two empires kept Asia Minor, Syria and Egypt, in a state of perpetual unrest and waste. In the first century AD, these lands were still at a high level of civilization, wealthy, and with an, an abundant population, but the continual coming and going of armies, massacres, looting, and war taxation, wore them down steadily, until only shattered and ruinous cities remained, upon a countryside of scattered peasants. In this melancholy process of impoverishment and disorder, Lower Egypt fared perhaps less badly than the rest of the world. Alexandria, like Constantinople, continued a dwindling trade between the East and the West. Science and political philosophy seemed dead now in both these warring and decaying empires. The last philosophers of Athens, until their suppression, preserved the texts of the great literature of the past with an infinite reverence and want of understanding. But there remained no class of men in the world, no free gentleman with bold and independent habits of thought, to carry on the tradition of frank statement and inquiry embodied in these writings. The social and political chaos accounts largely for the disappearance of this class, but there was also another reason why the human intelligence was sterile and feverish during this age. In both Persia and Byzantium it was all age of intolerance, both empires were religious empires in a new way, in a way that greatly hampered the free activities of the human mind. Of course, the oldest empires in the world were religious empires, centering upon the worship of a god or of a god-king. Alexander was treated as a divinity, and the Caesars were gods in so much as they had altars and temples devoted to them and the offering of incense was made a test of loyalty to the Roman state. But these altar religions were essentially religions of act and fact. They did not invade the mind. If a man offered his sacrifice and bowed to the god, he was left not only to think, but to say practically whatever he liked about the affair. 
but the new sort of religions that had come into the world, and particularly Christianity, turned inward. These new faiths demanded not simply conformity, but understanding belief. Naturally fierce controversy ensued upon the exact meaning of the things believed. These new religions were creed religions. The world was confronted with a new word, orthodoxy, and with a stern resolve to keep not only acts, but speech and private thought within the limits of a set teaching. For to hold a wrong opinion, much more to convey it to other people, was no longer regarded as an intellectual defect, but a moral fault that might condemn a soul to everlasting destruction. Both Ardashir I, who founded the Sassanid dynasty in the 3rd century AD, and Constantine the Great, who reconstructed the Roman Empire in the 4th, turned to religious organizations for help, because in these organizations they saw a new means of using and controlling the wills of men. And already before the end of the 4th century, both empires were persecuting free talk and religious innovation. In Persia, Ardashir found the ancient Persian religion of Zoroaster, or Zarathustra, with its priests and temples and a sacred fire that burnt upon its altars, ready for his purpose as a state religion. Before the end of the third century, Zoroastrianism was persecuting Christianity, and in 277 A.D., Mani, the founder of a new faith, the Manichaeans, was crucified and his body flayed. Constantinople, on its side, was busy hunting out Christian heresies. Manichaean ideas infected Christianity and had to be fought with the fiercest methods. In return, ideas from Christianity affected the purity of the Zoroastrian doctrine. All ideas became suspect. Science, which demands before all things the free action of an untroubled mind, suffered a complete eclipse throughout this phase of intolerance. War, the bitterest theology, and the usual vices of mankind, constituted Byzantine life of those days. It was picturesque, it was romantic, it had little sweetness or light. When Byzantium and Persia were not fighting the barbarians from the north, they wasted Asia Minor and Syria in dreary and destructive hostilities. Even in close alliance, these two empires would have found it a hard task to turn back the barbarians and recover their prosperity. The Turks or Tartars first come into history as the allies first of one power and then of another. In the 6th century, the two chief antagonists were Justinian and the I. In the opening of the 7th, the emperor Heraclius was pitted against Khosris the second, five hundred eighty. At first and until after Heraclius had become emperor, six hundred and ten, Khosris the second carried all before him. He took Antioch, Damascus, and Jerusalem, and his armies reached Chalcedon, which is in Asia Minor, over against Constantinople. In six hundred nineteen, he conquered Egypt. Then Heraclius pressed the counterattack home and routed a Persian army at Nineveh, 627, although at that time there were still Persian troops at Chalcedon. In 628, 
Kosris II was deposed and murdered by his son, Kavach, and an inconclusive peace was made between the two exhausted empires. Byzantium and Persia had fought their last war, but few peoples as yet dreamt of the storm that was even then gathering in the deserts to put an end for ever to this aimless, chronic struggle. While Heraclius was restoring order in Syria, a message reached him. It had been brought in to the imperial outpost at Bostra, south of Damascus. It was in Arabic, an obscure Semitic desert language, and it was read to the emperor, if it reached him at all, by an interpreter. It was from someone who called himself Muhammad, the prophet of God. It called upon the emperor to acknowledge the one true God and to serve him. What the emperor said is not recorded. A similar message came to Kavat at Tsetsiphon. He was annoyed, tore up the letter, and bade the messenger be gone. This Muhammad, it appeared, was a Bedouin leader whose headquarters were in the mean little desert town of Medina. He was preaching a new religion of faith in the one true God. Even so, O Lord, he said, rend thou his kingdom from Kavat. End of chapter 41 Chapter 42 of A Short History of the World by H.G. Wells The Dynasties of Sui and Tang in China Throughout the 5th, 6th, and 7th and 8th centuries, there was a steady drift of Mongolian peoples westward. The Huns of Attila were merely precursors of this advance, which led at last to the establishment of Mongolian peoples in Finland, Estonia, Hungary, and Bulgaria, where their descendants, speaking languages akin to Turkish, survive to this day. The Mongolian nomads were, in fact, playing a role towards the Aryanized civilizations of Europe and Persia and India that the Aryans had played to the Aegean and Semitic civilizations ten or fifteen centuries before. In Central Asia, the Turkish peoples had taken root in what is now western Turkestan, and Persia already employed many Turkish officials and Turkish mercenaries. The Parthians had gone out of history, absorbed into the general population of Persia. There were no more Aryan nomads in the history of Central Asia. Mongolian people had replaced them. The Turks became masters of Asia from China to the Caspian. The same great pestilence at the end of the 2nd century A.D. that had shattered the Roman Empire had overthrown the Han dynasty in China. Then came a period of division and of Hunnish conquests, from which China arose refreshed, more rapidly and more completely than Europe was destined to do. Before the end of the 6th century, China was reunited under the Soi dynasty, and this, by the time of Heraclius, gave place to the Tang dynasty, whose reign marks another great period of prosperity for China. Throughout the 7th, 8th, and ninth centuries, China was the most secure and civilized country in the world. The Han dynasty had extended her boundaries in the north. The Sui and Tang dynasties now spread her civilization to the south, and China began to assume the proportions she has today. In Central Asia, indeed, she reached much further, extending at last, through tributary Turkish tribes, to Persia and the Caspian Sea. 
the new China that had arisen was a very different land from the old China of the Hans. A new and more vigorous literary school appeared. There was a great poetic revival. Buddhism had revolutionized philosophical and religious thought. There were great advances in artistic work, in technical skill, and in all the amenities of life. Tea was first used, paper manufactured, and woodblock printing began. Millions of people, indeed, were leading orderly, graceful, and kindly lives in China during these centuries, when the attenuated populations of Europe and Western Asia were living either in hovels, small walled cities, or grim robber fortresses. While the mind of the West was black with theological obsessions, the mind of China was open and tolerant and inquiring. One of the earliest monarchs of the Tang dynasty was Tai Tsung, who began to reign in 627, the year of the victory of Heraclius at Nineveh. He received an embassy from Heraclius, who was probably seeking an ally in the rear of Persia. From Persia itself came a party of Christian missionaries, 635. They were allowed to explain their creed to Tai Tsung, and he examined a Chinese translation of their scriptures. He pronounced this strange religion acceptable, and gave permission to the foundation of a church and monastery. To this monarch also, in 628, came messengers from Muhammad. They came to Canton on a trading ship. They had sailed the whole way from Arabia along the Indian coasts. Unlike Heraclius and Kavad, Tetsung gave these envoys a courteous hearing. He expressed his interest in their theological ideas and assisted them to build a mosque in Canton, a mosque which survives, it is said to this day, the oldest mosque in the world. End of chapter 42 Chapter 43 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells Muhammad and Islam A prophetic amateur of history surveying the world in the opening of the 7th century might have concluded very reasonably that it was only a question of a few centuries before the whole of Europe and Asia fell under Mongolian domination. There were no signs of order or union in Western Europe, and the Byzantine and Persian empires were manifestly bent upon a mutual destruction. India was also divided and wasted. On the other hand, China was a steadily expanding empire, which probably at that time exceeded all Europe in population. And the Turkish people, who were growing to power in Central Asia, were disposed to work in accord with China. And such a prophecy would not have been an altogether vain one. A time was to come, in the thirteenth century, when a Mongolian overlord would rule from the Danube to the Pacific, and Turkish dynasties were destined to reign over the entire Byzantine and Persian empires, over Egypt and most of India, where our prophet would have been most likely to have erred would have been in underestimating the recuperative power of the Latin end of Europe, and in ignoring the latent forces of the Arabian desert. Arabia would have seemed what it had been, for times immemorial, the refuge of small and bickering nomadic tribes. No Semitic people had founded an empire now for more than a thousand years. 
Then suddenly the Bedouin flared out for a brief century of splendor. They spread their rule and language from Spain to the boundaries of China. They gave the world a new culture. They created a religion that is still to this day one of the most vital forces in the world. The man who fired this Arab flame appears first in history as the young husband of the widow of a rich merchant of the town of Mecca named Muhammad. Until he was forty, he did very little to distinguish himself in the world. He seems to have taken considerable interest in religious discussion. Mecca was a pagan city at that time, worshipping in particular a black stone, the Kaaba, of great repute throughout all Arabia, and a centre of pilgrimages. But there were great numbers of Jews in the country. Indeed, all the southern portion of Arabia professed the Jewish faith, and there were Christian churches in Syria. About forty, Muhammad began to develop prophetic characteristics like those of the Hebrew prophets twelve hundred years before him. He talked first to his wife of the one true God and of the rewards and punishments of virtue and wickedness. There can be no doubt that his thoughts were very strongly influenced by Jewish and Christian ideas. He gathered about him a small circle of believers, and presently began to preach, in the town, against the prevalent idolatry. This made him extremely unpopular with his fellow townsmen, because the pilgrimages to the Kaaba were the chief source of such prosperity as Mecca enjoyed. He became bolder and more definite in his teaching, declaring himself to be the last chosen prophet of God, entrusted with a mission to perfect religion. Abraham, he declared, and Jesus Christ were his forerunners. He had been chosen to complete and perfect the revelation of God's will. He produced verses which he said had been communicated to him by an angel, and he had a strange vision in which he was taken up through the heavens to God and instructed in his mission. As his teaching increased in force, the hostility of his fellow townsmen increased also. At last a plot was made to kill him, but he escaped with his faithful friend and disciple, Abu Bakr, to the friendly town of Medina, which adopted his doctrine. Hostilities followed between Mecca and Medina, which ended at last in a treaty. Mecca was to adopt the worship of the one true God, and accept Muhammad as his prophet, but the adherents of the new faith were still to make the pilgrimage to Mecca, just as they had done when they were pagans. So Muhammad established the one true God in Mecca, without injuring its pilgrim traffic. In 629, Muhammad returned to Mecca as its master, a year after he had sent out these envoys of his to Heraclius, Taitsung, Kavad, and all the rulers of the earth. Then, for four years more, until his death in 632, Muhammad spread his power over the rest of Arabia. He married a number of wives in his declining years, and his life on the whole was by modern standards unedifying. He seems to have been a man compounded of very considerable vanity, greed, cunning, self-deception, and quite sincere religious passion. He dictated a book of injunctions and expositions, the Koran, 
which he declared was communicated to him from God. Regarded as literature of philosophy, the Quran is certainly unworthy of its alleged divine authorship. Yet when the manifest defects of Muhammad's life and writings have been allowed for, there remains in Islam, this faith he imposed upon the Arabs, much power and inspiration. One is its uncompromising monotheism, its simple enthusiastic faith in the rule and fatherhood of God, and its freedom from theological complications. Another is its complete detachment from the sacrificial priest and the temple. It is an entirely prophetic religion, proof against any possibility of relapse towards blood sacrifices. In the Koran, the limited and ceremonial nature of the pilgrimage to Mecca is stated beyond the possibility of dispute, and every precaution was taken by Muhammad to prevent the deification of himself after his death. And a third element of strength lay in the insistence of Islam upon the perfect brotherhood and equality before God of all believers, whatever their color, origin, or status. These are the things that made Islam a power in human affairs. It has been said that the true founder of the empire of Islam was not so much Muhammad as his friend and helper, Abu Bakr. If Muhammad, with his shifty character, was the mind and imagination of primitive Islam, Abu Bakr was its conscience and its will. Whenever Muhammad wavered, Abu Bakr sustained him. And when Muhammad died, Abu Bakr became caliph, successor, and with that faith that moves mountains, he set himself simply and sanely to organize the subjugation of the whole world to Allah, with little armies of 3,000 or 4,000 Arabs, according to those letters the Prophet had written from Medina in 628 to all the monarchs of the world. End of chapter 43 Chapter 44 of A Short History of the World by H.G. Wells The Great Days of the Arabs There follows the most amazing story of conquest in the whole history of our race. The Byzantine army was smashed at the Battle of the Yarmouk, a tributary of the Jordan, in 634, and the Emperor Heraclius, his energy sapped by dropsy and his resources exhausted by the Persian War, saw his new conquests in Syria, Damascus, Palmyra, Antioch, Jerusalem, and the rest, fall almost without resistance to the Muslim. Large elements in the population went over to Islam. Then the Muslim turned east. The Persians had found an able general in Rustam. They had a great host with a force of elephants, and for three days they fought the Arabs at Cadesia, 637 and broke at last in headlong route. The conquest of all Persia followed, and the Muslim Empire pushed far into western Turkestan and eastward until it met the Chinese. Egypt fell almost without resistance to the new conquerors, who, full of a fanatical belief in the sufficiency of the Koran, wiped out the vestiges of the book-copying industry of the Alexandria Library. The tide of conquest poured along the north coast of Africa to the Straits of Gibraltar and Spain. 
Spain was invaded in 710, and the Pyrenees Mountains were reached in 720. In 732, the Arab advance had reached the center of France, but there it was stopped for good at the Battle of Poitiers and thrust back as far as the Pyrenees again. The conquest of Egypt had given the Moslem a fleet, and for a time it looked as though they would take Constantinople. They made repeated sea attacks between 672 and 780, but the great city held out against them. The Arabs had little political aptitude and no political experience, and this great empire, with its capital now at Damascus, which stretched from Spain to China, was destined to break up very speedily. From the very beginning, doctrinal differences undermined its unity. But our interest here lies not with the story of its political disintegration, but with its effect upon the human mind and upon the general destinies of our race. The Arab intelligence had been flung across the world even more swiftly and dramatically than had the Greek a thousand years before. The intellectual stimulation of the whole world west of China, the breakup of old ideas and development of new ones, was enormous. In Persia, this fresh excited Arabic mind came into contact not only with Manichaean, Zoroastrian and Christian doctrine, but with the scientific Greek literature, preserved not only in Greek, but in Syrian translations. It found Greek learning in Egypt also, everywhere, and particularly in Spain. It discovered an active Jewish tradition of speculation and discussion. In Central Asia it met Buddhism and the material achievements of Chinese civilization. It learned the manufacture of paper, which made printed books possible from the Chinese. And finally it came into touch with Indian mathematics and philosophy. Very speedily the intolerant self-sufficiency of the early days of faith, which made the Koran seem the only possible book, was dropped. Learning sprang up everywhere in the footsteps of the Arab conquerors. By the 8th century there was an educational organization throughout the whole Arabized world. In the ninth, learned men in the schools of Cordoba in Spain were corresponding with learned men in Cairo, Baghdad, Bokhara, and Samarkand. The Jewish mind assimilated very readily with the Arab, and for a time the two Semitic races worked together through the medium of Arabic. Long after the political breakup and enfeeblement of the Arabs, this intellectual community of the Arab-speaking world endured. It was still producing very considerable results in the 13th century. So it was that the systematic accumulation and criticism of facts, which was first begun by the Greeks, was resumed in this astonishing renaissance of the Semitic world. The seed of Aristotle and the Museum of Alexandria, that had lain so long inactive and neglected, now germinated and began to grow towards fruition. Very great advances were made in mathematical, medical and physical science. The clumsy Roman numerals were ousted by the Arabic figures we use to this day, and the zero sign was first employed. The very name algebra is Arabic. 
so is the word chemistry. The names of such stars as Algol, Aldebaran, and Boethes preserve the traces of Arab conquests in the sky. Their philosophy was destined to reanimate the medieval philosophy of France and Italy and the whole Christian world. The Arab experimental chemists were called alchemists, and they were still sufficiently barbaric in spirit to keep their methods and results secret as far as possible. They realized from the very beginning what enormous advantages their possible discoveries might give them, and what far-reaching consequences they might have on human life. They came upon many metallurgical and technical devices of the utmost value, alloys and dyes, distilling, tinctures and essences, optical glass. But the two chief ends they sought, they sought in vain. One was the philosopher's stone, a means of changing the metallic elements one into another, and so getting control of artificial gold, and the other was the elixir vitae, a stimulant that would revivify age and prolong life indefinitely. The crabbed patient experimenting of these Arab alchemists spread into the Christian world. The fascination of their inquiries spread. Very gradually, the activities of these alchemists became more social and cooperative. They found it profitable to exchange and compare ideas. By insensible gradations, the last of the alchemists became the first of the experimental philosophers. The old alchemists sought the philosopher's stone, which was to transmute base metals to gold, and an elixir of immortality. They found the methods of modern experimental science, which promise in the end to give man illimitable power over the world and over his own destiny. End of chapter 44 Chapter 45 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells The Development of Latin Christendom It is worthwhile to note the extremely shrunken dimensions of the share of the world remaining under Aryan control in the 7th and 8th centuries. A thousand years before, the Aryan-speaking races were triumphant over all the civilized world west of China. Now, the Mongol had thrust as far as Hungary. Nothing of Asia remained under Aryan rule except the Byzantine dominions in Asia Minor, and all Africa was lost, and nearly all Spain. The great Hellenic world had shrunken to a few possessions, round the nucleus of the trading city of Constantinople, and the memory of the Roman world was kept alive by the Latin of the Western Christian priests. In vivid contrast to this tale of retrogression, the Semitic tradition had risen again from subjugation and obscurity after a thousand years of darkness. Yet the vitality of the Nordic peoples was not exhausted. Confined now to central and northwestern Europe, and terribly muddled in their social and political ideas, they were nevertheless building up gradually and steadily a new social order and preparing unconsciously for the recovery of a power even more extensive than they had previously enjoyed. We have told how, at the beginning of the sixth century, 
there remained no central government in Western Europe at all. That world was divided up among numbers of local rulers holding their own as they could. This was too insecure a state of affairs to last. A system of cooperation and association grew up in this disorder, the feudal system, which has left its traces upon European life up to the present time. The feudal system, which has left its traces upon European life up to the present time. This feudal system was a sort of crystallization of society about power. Everywhere the lone man felt insecure, and was prepared to barter a certain amount of his liberty to help and protection. He sought a stronger man as his lord and protector. He gave him military services and paid him dues, and in return he was confirmed in his possession of what was his. His lord again found safety in vassalage to a still greater lord. Cities also found it convenient to have feudal protectors, and monasteries and church estates bound themselves by similar ties. No doubt in many cases allegiance was claimed before it was offered. The system grew downward as well as upward. So a sort of pyramidal system grew up, varying widely in different localities, permitting at first a considerable play of violence and private warfare, but making steadily for order and a new reign of law. The pyramids grew up until some became recognizable as kingdoms. Already by the early 6th century a Frankish kingdom existed, under its founder Clovis, in what is now France and the Netherlands, and presently Visigothic and Lombard and Gothic kingdoms were in existence. The Moslem, when they crossed the Pyrenees in 720, found this Frankish kingdom under the practical rule of Charles Martel, the mayor of the palace of a degenerate descendant of Clovis, and experienced the decisive defeat at Poitiers, 732, at his hands. This Charles Martel was practically overlord of Europe north of the Alps from the Pyrenees to Hungary. He ruled over a multitude of subordinate lords, speaking French, Latin, and high and low German languages. His son Pepin, extinguished the last descendants of Clovis, and took the kingly state and title. His grandson Charlemagne, who began to reign in 768, found himself lord of a realm so large that he could think of reviving the title of Latin Emperor. He conquered North Italy and made himself master of Rome. Approaching the story of Europe as we do from the wider horizons of world history, we can see much more distinctly than the mere nationalist historian how cramping and disastrous this tradition of the Latin Roman Empire was. A narrow, intense struggle for this phantom predominance was to consume European energy for more than a thousand years. Through all that period, it is possible to trace certain unquenchable antagonisms. They run through the wits of Europe like the obsessions of a demented mind. One driving force was this ambition of successful rulers, which Charlemagne, Charles the Great, embodied to become Caesar. The realm of Charlemagne consisted of a complex of feudal German states at various stages of barbarism. West of the Rhine, most of these German peoples had learned to speak various Latinized dialects, which fused at last to form French. East of the Rhine, the racially similar German peoples, 
did not lose their German speech. On account of this, communication was difficult between these two groups of barbarian conquerors, and a split easily brought about. The split was made the more easy by the fact that the Frankish usage made it seem natural to divide the empire of Charlemagne among his sons at his death. So one aspect of the history of Europe from the days of Charlemagne onwards is a history of first this monarch and his family, and then that, struggling to a precarious headship of the kings, princes, dukes, bishops, and cities of Europe, while a steadily deepening antagonism between the French and German-speaking elements develops in the medley. There was a formality of election for each emperor, and the climax of his ambition was to struggle to the possession of that worn-out, misplaced capital Rome, and to coronation there. The next factor in the European political disorder was the resolve of the Church at Rome to make no temporal prince but the Pope of Rome himself, emperor in effect. He was already Pontifex Maximus, for all practical purposes he held a decaying city. If he had no armies, he had at least a vast propaganda organization in his priests, throughout the whole Latin world. If he had little power over men's bodies, he held the keys of heaven and hell in their imaginations, and could exercise much influence upon their souls. So throughout the Middle Ages, while one prince maneuvered against another first for equality, then for ascendancy, and at last for the supreme prize, the Pope of Rome, sometimes boldly, sometimes craftily, sometimes feebly, for the popes were a succession of oldish men, and the average reign of a pope was not more than two years, manoeuvred for the submission of all the princes to himself, as the ultimate overlord of Christendom. But these antagonisms of prince against prince and of emperor against pope do not by any means exhaust the factors of the European confusion. There was still an emperor in Constantinople speaking Greek, and claiming the allegiance of all Europe. When Charlemagne sought to revive the empire, it was merely the Latin end of the empire he revived. It was natural that the sense of rivalry between Latin empire and Greek empire should develop very rapidly. And still more readily did the rivalry of Greek-speaking Christianity and the newer Latin-speaking version developed. The Pope of Rome claimed to be the successor of St. Peter, the chief of the apostles of Christ, and the head of the Christian community everywhere. Neither the emperor nor the patriarch of Constantinople were disposed to acknowledge this claim. A dispute about a fine point in the doctrine of the Holy Trinity consummated a long series of dissensions in a final rupture in 1054. The Latin Church and the Greek Church became and remained thereafter distinct and frankly antagonistic. This antagonism must be added to the others in our estimate of the conflicts that wasted Latin Christendom in the Middle Ages. Upon this divided world of Christendom reigned the blows of three sets of antagonists. About the Baltic and North Seas remained a series of Nordic tribes who were only very slowly and reluctantly Christianized. These were the Northmen. They had taken to the sea and piracy, and were raiding all the Christian coasts down to Spain. They had pushed up the Russian rivers 
to the desolate central lands, and brought their shipping over into the south-flowing rivers. They had come out upon the Caspian and Black Seas as pirates also. They set up principalities in Russia. They were the first people to be called Russians. These Norsemen, Russians, came near to taking Constantinople. England in the early ninth century was a Christianized, low-German country under a king, Egbert, a protégé and pupil of Charlemagne. The Norsemen wrested half the kingdom from his successor Alfred the Great, 886, and finally under Canute, 1016, made themselves masters of the whole land. Under Rolf the Ganger, 912, another band of Norsemen conquered the north of France, which became Normandy. Canute ruled not only over England, but over Norway and Denmark, but his brief empire fell to pieces at his death through that political weakness of the barbaric peoples, division among a ruler's sons. It is interesting to speculate what might have happened if this temporary union of the Norsemen had endured. They were a race of astonishing boldness and energy. They sailed in their galleys even to Iceland and Greenland. They were the first Europeans to land on American soil. Leighton on Norman adventurers were to recover Sicily from the Saracens and sack Rome. It is a fascinating thing to imagine what a great northern seafaring power might have grown out of Canute's kingdom, reaching from America to Russia. To the east of the Germans and Latinized Europeans was a medley of Slav tribes and Turkish peoples. Prominent among these were the Magyars or Hungarians, who were coming westward throughout the 8th and ninth centuries. Charlemagne held them for a time, but after his death they established themselves in what is now Hungary, and after the fashion of their kindred predecessors, the Huns, raided every summer into the settled parts of Europe. In 938 they went through Germany into France, crossed the Alps into North Italy, and so came home, burning, robbing, and destroying. Finally pounding away from the south the vestiges of the Roman Empire were the Saracens. They had made themselves largely masters of the sea. Their only formidable adversaries upon the water were the Norsemen, the Russian Norsemen out of the Black Sea, and the Norsemen of the West. Hemmed in by these more vigorous and aggressive peoples, amidst forces they did not understand, and dangers they could not estimate, Charlemagne and after him a series of other ambitious spirits took up the futile drama of restoring the Western Empire under the name of the Holy Roman Empire. From the time of Charlemagne onward, this idea obsessed the political life of Western Europe, while in the East the Greek half of the Roman power decayed and dwindled, until at last nothing remained of it at all but the corrupt trading city of Constantinople, and a few miles of territory about it. Politically the continent of Europe remained traditional and uncreative from the time of Charlemagne onward for a thousand years. The name of Charlemagne looms large in European history, but his personality is but indistinctly seen. He could not read nor write, but he had a considerable respect for learning. He liked to be read aloud to at meals, and he had a weakness for theological discussion. At his winter quarters at Aix-la-Capelle or Mayence, 
he gathered about him a number of learned men, and picked up much from their conversation. In the summer he made war against the Spanish Saracens, against the Slaws and Magyars, against the Saxons and other still heathen German tribes. It is doubtful whether the idea of becoming Caesar in succession to Romulus Augustulus occurred to him, before his acquisition of North Italy, or whether it was suggested to him by Pope Leo III, who was anxious to make the Latin Church independent of Constantinople. There were the most extraordinary maneuvers at Rome between the Pope and the prospective Emperor, in order to make it appear, or not appear, as if the Pope gave him the imperial crown. The Pope succeeded in crowning his visitor and conqueror by surprise in St. Peter's on Christmas Day, 800 A.D. He produced a crown, put it on the head of Charlemagne, and hailed him Caesar and Augustus. There was a great applause among the people. Charlemagne was by no means pleased at the way in which the thing was done. It rankled in his mind as a defeat, and he left the most careful instructions to his son that he was not to let the Pope crown him emperor. He was to seize the crown into his own hands and put it on his own head himself. So at the very outset of this imperial revival we see beginning the age-long dispute of Pope and Emperor for priority. But Louis the Pious, the son of Charlemagne, disregarded his father's instructions and was entirely submissive to the Pope. The empire of Charlemagne fell apart at the death of Louis the Pious, and the split between the French-speaking Franks and the German-speaking Franks widened. The next emperor to arise was Otto, the son of a certain Henry the Fowler, a Saxon, who had been elected King of Germany by an assembly of German princes and prelates in 919. Otto descended upon Rome and was crowned emperor there in 962. This Saxon line came to an end early in the 11th century and gave place to other German rulers. The feudal princes and nobles to the west, who spoke various French dialects, did not fall under the sway of these German emperors after the Karlovinkian line, the line that is descended for Charlemagne, had come to an end, and no part of Britain ever came into the Holy Roman Empire. The Duke of Normandy, the King of France, and a number of lesser feudal rulers remained outside. In 987, the Kingdom of France passed out of the possession of the Carlovingian line into the hands of Hugh Capet, whose descendants were still reigning in the 18th century. At the time of Hugh Capet, the King of France ruled only a comparatively small territory around Paris. In 1066, England was attacked almost simultaneously by an invasion of the Norwegian Norsemen under King Harald Hardrada, and by the Latinized Norsemen under the Duke of Normandy. Harald, King of England, defeated the former at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, and was defeated by the latter at Hastings. England was conquered by the Normans, and so cut off from Scandinavian, Teutonic and Russian affairs, and brought into the most intimate relations and conflicts with the French. For the next four centuries the English were entangled in the conflicts of the French feudal princes and wasted upon the fields of France. End of chapter 45 Chapter 46 of 
A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells The Crusades and the Age of Papal Dominion It is interesting to note that Charlemagne corresponded with the Caliph Harun al-Rashid, the Harun al-Rashid of the Arabian Nights. It is recorded that Harun al-Rashid sent ambassadors from Baghdad, which had now replaced Damascus as the Muslim capital, with a splendid tent, a water clock, an elephant, and the keys of the Holy Sepulchre. This latter present was admirably calculated to set the Byzantine Empire and this new Holy Roman Empire by the ears, as to which was the proper protector of the Christians in Jerusalem. These presents remind us that while Europe in the ninth century was still a weltering disorder of war and pillage, there flourished a great Arab empire in Egypt and Mesopotamia, far more civilized than anything Europe could show. Here literature and science still lived, the arts flourished, and the mind of man could move without fear or superstition. And even in Spain and North Africa, where the Saracenic dominions were falling into political confusion, there was a vigorous intellectual life. Aristotle was read and discussed by these Jews and Arabs during these centuries of European darkness. They guarded the neglected seeds of science and philosophy. Northeast of the Caliph's dominions was a number of Turkish tribes. They had been converted to Islam, and they held the faith much more simply and fiercely than the actively intellectual Arabs and Persians to the south. In the tenth century the Turks were growing strong and vigorous, while the Arab power was divided and decaying. The relations of the Turks to the empire of the Caliphate became very similar to the relations of the Medes to the last Babylonian empire fourteen centuries before. In the eleventh century a group of Turkish tribes, the Seljuk Turks, came down into Mesopotamia and made the Caliph their nominal ruler, but really their captive and tool. They conquered Armenia. Then they struck at the remnants of the Byzantine power in Asia Minor. In 1071, the Byzantine army was utterly smashed at the Battle of Melisgird, and the Turks swept forward until not a trace of Byzantine rule remained in Asia. They took the fortress of Nicaea over against Constantinople and prepared to attempt that city. The Byzantine Emperor Michael VII was overcome with terror. He was already heavily engaged in warfare with a band of Norman adventurers who had seized Durazzo and with a fierce Turkish people, the Pechenegs, who were raiding over the Danube. In his extremity he sought help where he could, and it is notable that he did not appeal to the Western Emperor, but to the Pope of Rome as the head of Latin Christendom. He wrote to Pope Gregory VII, and his successor Alexius Comenus wrote still more urgently to Urban II. This was not a quarter of a century from the rupture of Latin and Greek churches. That controversy was still vividly alive in men's minds, and this disaster to Byzantium must have presented itself to the Pope as a supreme opportunity for reasserting the supremacy of the Latin Church over the dissentient Greeks. Moreover, this occasion gave the Pope a chance to deal with two other matters that troubled Western Christendom very greatly. One was the custom of private war, 
which disordered social life, and the other was the superabundant fighting energy of the low Germans and Christianized Northmen, and particularly of the Franks and Normans. A religious war, the Crusade, the War of the Cross, was preached against the Turkish captors of Jerusalem, and a truce to all warfare amongst Christians. 1095. The declared object of this war was the recovery of the Holy Sepulchre from the unbelievers. A man called Peter the Hermit carried on a popular propaganda throughout France and Germany on broadly democratic lines. He went clad in a coarse garment, barefooted on an ass. He carried a huge cross and harangued the crowd in street or marketplace or church. He denounced the cruelties practiced upon the Christian pilgrims by the Turks, and the shame of the holy sepulchre being in any but Christian hands. The fruits of centuries of Christian teaching became apparent in the response. A great wave of enthusiasm swept the Western world, and popular Christendom discovered itself. Such a widespread uprising of the common people in relation to a single idea as now occurred was a new thing in the history of our race. There is nothing to parallel it in the previous history of the Roman Empire or of India or China. On a smaller scale, however, there had been similar movements amongst the Jewish people after their liberation from the Babylonian captivity, and later on Islam was to display a parallel susceptibility to collective feeling. Such movements were certainly connected with the new spirit that had come into life with the development of the missionary teaching religions. The Hebrew prophets, Jesus and his disciples, Manny, Muhammad, were all exhorters of men's individual souls. They brought the personal conscience face to face with God. Before that time, religion had been much more a business of fetish, of pseudoscience, than of conscience. The old kind of religion turned upon temple, initiated priest and mystical sacrifice, and ruled the common man like a slave by fear. The new kind of religion made a man of him. The preaching of the First Crusade was the first stirring of the common people in European history. It may be too much to call it the birth of modern democracy, but certainly at that time modern democracy stirred. Before very long we shall find it stirring again, and raising the most disturbing social and religious questions. Certainly this first stirring of democracy ended very pitifully and lamentably. Considerable bodies of common people, crowds rather than armies, set out eastward from France and the Rhineland and Central Europe, without waiting for leaders or proper equipment to rescue the Holy Sepulchre. This was the People's Crusade. Two great mobs blundered into Hungary, mistook the recently converted Magyars for pagans, committed atrocities and were massacred. A third multitude with a similarly confused mind, after a great pogrom of the Jews in the Rhineland, marched eastward and was also destroyed in Hungary. Two other huge crowds, under the leadership of Peter the Hermit himself, reached Constantinople, crossed the Bosphorus, and were massacred rather than defeated by the Seljuk Turks. So began and ended this first movement of the European people, as people. Next year, 1097, 
the real fighting forces crossed the Bosphorus. Essentially, they were Norman in leadership and spirit. They stormed Nicaea, marched by much the same route as Alexander had followed fourteen centuries before to Antioch. The siege of Antioch kept them a year, and in June 1099 they invested Jerusalem. It was stormed after a month's siege. The slaughter was terrible. Men riding on horseback were splashed by the blood in the streets. At nightfall on July 15th, the crusaders had fought their way into the church of this holy sepulchre and overcome all opposition there. Blood-stained, weary, and sobbing from excess of joy, they knelt down in prayer. Immediately the hostility of Latin and Greek broke out again. The crusaders were the servants of the Latin church, and the Greek patriarch of Jerusalem found himself in a far worse case under the triumphant Latins than under the Turks. The crusaders discovered themselves between Byzantine and Turk and fighting both. Much of Asia Minor was recovered by the Byzantine Empire, and the Latin princes were left, a buffer between Turk and Greek, with Jerusalem and a few small principalities, of which Edessa was one of the chief in Syria. Their grip, even on the possessions, was precarious, and in 1144 Edessa fell to the Moslem, leading to an ineffective second crusade, which failed to recover Edessa, but saved Antioch from a similar fate. In 1169 the forces of Islam were rallied under a Kurdish adventurer named Saladin, who had made himself master of Egypt. He preached a holy war against the Christians, recaptured Jerusalem in 1187, and so provoked the Third Crusade. This failed to recover Jerusalem. In the Fourth Crusade, 1202-1204, the Latin Church turned frankly upon the Greek Empire, and there was not even a pretense of fighting the Turks. It started from Venice, and in 1204 it stormed Constantinople. The great rising trading city of Venice was the leader in this adventure, and most of the coasts and islands of the Byzantine Empire were annexed by the Venetians. A Latin emperor, Baldwin of Flanders, was set up in Constantinople, and the Latin and Greek church were declared to be reunited. The Latin emperors ruled in Constantinople from 1204 to 1261, when the Greek world shook itself free again from Roman predominance. The 12th century then, and the opening of the 13th, was the age of papal ascendancy, just as the 11th was the age of the ascendancy of the Seljuk Turks, and the 10th the age of the Norsemen. A united Christendom, under the rule of the Pope, came nearer to being a working reality than it ever was before or after that time. In those centuries a simple Christian faith was real and widespread over great areas of Europe. Rome itself had passed through some dark and discreditable phases. Few writers can be found to excuse the lives of Popes John the Eleventh and John the Twelfth in the tenth century. They were abominable creatures. But the heart and body of Latin Christendom had remained earnest and simple. The generality of the common priests and monks and nuns had lived exemplary and faithful lives. Upon the wealth of confidence such lives created rested the power of the Church. 
Among the great popes of the past had been Gregory the Great, Gregory I, 590 to 604, and Leo III, 795 to 816, who invited Charlemagne to be Caesar and crowned him in spite of himself. Towards the close of the 11th century, there arose a great clerical statesman, Hildebrand, who ended his life as Pope Gregory the Seventh, ten seventy three to ten eighty five. Next but one after him came Urban the Second, ten eighty seven to ten ninety nine, the Pope of the First Crusade. These two were the founders of this period of papal greatness, during which the popes lorded it over the emperors. From Bulgaria to Ireland and from Norway to Sicily and Jerusalem, the Pope was supreme. Gregory II obliged the Emperor Henry IV to come in penitence to him at Canossa and to await forgiveness for three days and nights in the courtyard of the castle, clad in sackcloth and barefooted to the snow. In 1176 at Venice, the Emperor Frederick, Frederick Barbarossa, knelt to Pope Alexander III and swore fealty to him. The great power of the Church in the beginning of the eleventh century lay in the wills and consciences of men. It failed to retain the moral prestige on which its power was based. In the opening decades of the fourteenth century it was discovered that the power of the Pope had evaporated. What was it that destroyed the naive confidence of the common people of Christendom in the Church, so that they would no longer rally to its appeal and serve its purposes. The first trouble was certainly the accumulation of wealth by the Church. The Church never died, and there was a frequent disposition on the part of dying, childless people to leave lands to the Church. Penitent sinners were exhorted to do so. Accordingly, in many European countries, as much as a fourth of the land became church property. The appetite for property grows with what it feeds upon. Already in the thirteenth century it was being said everywhere that the priests were not good men, that they were always hunting for money and legacies. The kings and princes disliked this alienation of property very greatly. In the place of feudal lords capable of military support, they found their land supporting abbeys and monks and nuns, and these lands were really under foreign dominion. Even before the time of Pope Gregory Seventh, there had been a struggle between the princes and the papacy over the question of investitures, the question, that is, of who should appoint the bishops. If that power rested with the pope and not the king, then the latter lost control, not only of the consciences of his subjects, but of a considerable part of his dominions. For also the clergy claimed exemption from taxation. They paid their taxes to Rome. And not only that, but the church also claimed the right to levy a tax of one-tenth upon the property of the layman, in addition to the taxes he paid his prince. The history of nearly every country in Latin Christendom tells of the same phase in the eleventh century, a phase of struggle between monarch and pope, on the issue of investitures, and generally, it tells of a victory for the pope. He claimed to be able to excommunicate the prince, to absolve his subjects from their allegiance to him, to recognize a successor. 
he claimed to be able to put a nation under an interdict, and then nearly all priestly functions ceased, except the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and penance. The priests could neither hold the ordinary services, marry people, nor bury the dead. With these two weapons it was possible for the twelfth-century popes to curb the most recalcitrant princes, and over all the most restive peoples. These were enormous powers, and enormous powers are only to be used on extraordinary occasions. The popes used them at last with a frequency that staled their effect. Within thirty years at the end of the twelfth century, we find Scotland, France, and England in turn under an interdict, and also the popes could not resist the temptation to preach crusades against offending princes, until the crusading spirit was extinct. It is possible that if the Church of Rome had struggled simply against the princes, and had had a care to keep its hold upon the general mind, it might have achieved a permanent dominion over all Christendom. But the high claims of the Pope were reflected as arrogance in the conduct of the clergy. Before the eleventh century the Roman priests could marry, they had close ties with the people among whom they lived, they were indeed a part of the people. Gregory the Seventh made them celibates, he cut the priests off from too great an intimacy with the laymen, in order to bind them more closely to Rome, but indeed he opened a fissure between the church and the commonalty. The church had its own law courts, cases involving not merely priests but monks, students, crusaders, widows, orphans, and the helpless, were reserved for the clerical courts, and so were all matters relating to wills, marriages, and oaths, and all cases of sorcery, heresy, and blasphemy. Whenever the layman found himself in conflict with the priest, he had to go to a clerical court. The obligations of peace and war fell upon his shoulders alone, and left the priest free. It is no great wonder that jealousy and hatred of the priests grew up in the Christian world. Never did Rome seem to realize that its power was in the consciences of common men. It fought against religious enthusiasm, which should have been its ally, and it forced doctrinal orthodoxy upon honest doubt and aberrant opinion. When the Church interfered in matters of morality, it had the common man with it, but not when it interfered in matters of doctrine. When in the south of France Waldo taught a return to the simplicity of Jesus in faith and life, Innocent III preached a crusade against the Waldenses, Waldo's followers, and permitted them to be suppressed with fire, sword, rape, and the most abominable cruelties. When again, St. Francis of Assisi, 1181-1226, taught the imitation of Christ, and a life of poverty and service. His followers, the Franciscans, were persecuted, scourged, imprisoned, and dispersed. In 1318, four of them were burned alive at Marseilles. On the other hand, the fiercely orthodox order of the Dominicans, founded by St. Dominic, 1170-1221, was strongly supported by Innocent III, who, with its assistance, set up an organization, the Inquisition, for the hunting of heresy and the affliction of free thought. 
So it was that the Church, by excessive claims, by unrighteous privileges, and by an irrational intolerance, destroyed that free faith of the common man, which was the final source of all its power. The story of its decline tells of no adequate foeman from without, but continually of decay from within. End of chapter 46 Chapter 47 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells Recalcitrant Princes and the Great Schism One very great weakness of the Roman Church in its struggle to secure the headship of all Christendom was the manner in which the Pope was chosen. If indeed the papacy was to achieve its manifest ambition and establish one rule and one peace throughout Christendom, then it was vitally necessary that it should have a strong, steady, and continuous direction. In those great days of its opportunity, it needed before all things that the popes, when they took office, should be able men in the prime of life, that each should have his successor designate, with whom he could discuss the policy of the Church, and that the forms and processes of election should be clear definite, unalterable, and unassailable. Unhappily none of these things obtained. It was not even clear who could vote in the election of a pope, nor whether the Byzantine or Holy Roman Emperor had a voice in the matter. That very great papal statesman Hildebrand, Pope Gregory the Seventh, 1073-1085, did much to regularize the election, he confined the votes to the Roman cardinals, and he reduced the emperor's share to a formula of assent conceded to him by the church. But he made no provision for a successor-designate, and he left it possible for the disputes of the cardinals to keep the see vacant, as in some cases it was kept vacant, for a year or more. The consequences of this want of firm definition are to be seen in the whole history of the papacy up to the sixteenth century. From quite early times onward, there were disputed elections, and two or more men each claiming to be pope. The church would then be subjected to the indignity of going to the emperor or some other outside arbiter to settle the dispute, and the career of every one of the great popes ended in a note of interrogation. At his death, the church might be left headless, and as ineffective as a decapitated body. Or he might be replaced by some old rival, eager only to discredit and undo his work. Or some enfeebled old man, tottering on the brink of the grave, might succeed him. It was inevitable that this peculiar weakness of the papal organization should attract the interference of the various German princes, the French king, and the Norman and French kings who ruled in England, that they should all try to influence the elections, and have a pope in their own interest established in the Lateran palace at Rome. And the more powerful and important the pope became in European affairs, the more urgent did these interventions become. Under the circumstances it is no great wonder that many of the popes were weak and futile. The astonishing thing is 
that many of them were able and courageous men. One of the most vigorous and interesting of the popes of this great period was Innocent III, 1198 to 1216, who was so fortunate as to become pope before he was thirty-eight. He and his successors were pitted against an even more interesting personality, the Emperor Frederick II, Stupor Mundi he was called, the wonder of the world. The struggle of this monarch against the Rome is a turning place in history. In the end, Rome defeated him and destroyed his dynasty, but he left the prestige of the church and pope so badly wounded that its wounds festered and led to its decay. Frederick was the son of the Emperor Henry VI, and his mother was the daughter of Roger I, the Norman King of Sicily. He inherited this kingdom in 1198, when he was a child of four years. Innocent III had been made his guardian. Sicily in those days had been but recently conquered by the Normans. The court was half-oriental and full of highly educated Arabs, and some of these were associated in the education of the young king. No doubt they were at some pains to make their point of view clear to him. He got a Muslim view of Christianity, as well as a Christian view of Islam, and the unhappy result of this double system of instruction was a view, exceptional in the age of faith, that all religions were impostures. He talked freely on the subject, his heresies and blasphemies are on record. As the young man grew up, he found himself in conflict with his guardian. Innocent III wanted altogether too much from his ward. When the opportunity came for Frederick to succeed as emperor, the Pope intervened with conditions. Frederick must promise to put down heresy in Germany with a strong hand. Moreover, he must relinquish his crown in Sicily and South Italy, because otherwise he would be too strong for the Pope. And the German clergy were to be freed from all taxation. Frederick agreed, but with no intention of keeping his word. The Pope had already induced the French king to make war upon his own subjects in France. The cruel and bloody crusade against the Waldenses he wanted Frederick to do the same thing in Germany. But Frederick, being far more of a heretic than any of the simple pietists who had incurred the Pope's animosity, lacked the crusading impulse. And when Innocent urged him to crusade against the Moslem and recover Jerusalem, he was equally ready to promise, and equally slack in his performance. Having secured the imperial crown, Frederick II stayed in Sicily, which he greatly preferred to Germany as a residence, and did nothing to redeem any of his promises to Innocent III, who died baffled in 1216. Honorius III, who succeeded Innocent, could do no better with Frederick, and Gregory IX, 1227, came to the papal throne evidently resolved to settle accounts with this young man at any cost. He excommunicated him. Frederick II was denied all the comforts of religion. In the half-Arab court of Sicily, this produced singularly little discomfort. 
and also the Pope addressed a public letter to the Emperor, reciting his vices, which were indisputable, his heresies, and his general misconduct. To this, Frederick replied in a document of diabolical ability. It was addressed to all the princes of Europe, and it made the first clear statement of the issue between the Pope and the princes. He made a shattering attack upon the manifest ambition of the Pope to become the absolute ruler of all Europe. He suggested a union of princes against this usurpation. He directed the attention of the princes specifically to the wealth of the Church. Having fired off this deadly missile, Frederick resolved to perform his twelve-year-old promise and go upon a crusade. This was the Sixth Crusade, 1228. It was as a crusade farcical. Frederick II went to Egypt and met and discussed affairs with the Sultan. These two gentlemen, both of skeptical opinions, exchanged congenial views, made a commercial convention to their mutual advantage, and agreed to transfer Jerusalem to Frederick. This indeed was a new sort of crusade, a crusade by private treaty. Here was no blood splashing the conqueror, no weeping with excess of joy. As this astonishing crusader was an excommunicated man, he had to be content with a purely secular coronation as king of Jerusalem, taking the crown from the altar with his own hand, for all the clergy were bound to shun him. He then returned to Italy, chased the papal armies which had invaded his dominions back to their own territories, and obliged the Pope to grant him absolution from his excommunication. So a prince might treat the Pope in the thirteenth century, and there was now no storm of popular indignation to avenge him. Those days were past. In 1239, Gregory the Ninth resumed his struggle with Frederick, excommunicated him for a second time, and renewed that warfare of public abuse in which the papacy had already suffered severely. The controversy was revived after Gregory the Ninth was dead, when Innocent the Fourth was Pope, and again a devastating letter, which men were bound to remember, was written by Frederick against the Church. He denounced the pride and irreligion of the clergy, and ascribed all the corruptions of the time to their pride and wealth. He proposed to his fellow princes a general confiscation of church property, for the good of the church. It was a suggestion that never afterwards left the imagination of the European princes. We will not go on to tell of his last years. The particular events of his life are far less significant than its general atmosphere. It is possible to piece together something of his court life in Sicily. He was luxurious in his way of living, and fond of beautiful things. He is described as licentious. But it is clear that he was a man of very effectual curiosity and inquiry. He gathered Jewish and Moslem as well as Christian philosophers at his court, and he did much to irrigate the Italian mind with Saracenic influences. Through him, the Arabic numerals and algebra were introduced to Christian students, and among other philosophers at his court was Michael Scott, who translated portions of Aristotle 
and the commentaries thereon of the great Arab philosopher Averroes of Cordoba. In 1224, Frederick founded the University of Naples, and he enlarged and enriched the great medical school at Salerno University. He also founded a zoological garden. He left a book on hawking, which shows him to have been an acute observer of the habits of birds, and he was one of the first Italians to write Italian verse. Italian poetry was indeed born at his court. He has been called, by an able writer, the first of the moderns, and the phrase expresses aptly the unprejudiced detachment of his intellectual side. A still more striking intimation of the decay of the living and sustaining forces of the papacy appeared when presently the popes came into conflict with the growing power of the French king. During the lifetime of the Emperor Frederick II, Germany fell into disunion, and the French king began to play the role of guard, supporter, and rival to the Pope, that had hitherto fallen to the Hohenstaufen emperors. A series of popes pursued the policy of supporting the French monarchs. French princes were established in the kingdoms of Sicily and Naples, with the support and approval of Rome, and the French kings saw before them the possibility of restoring and ruling the empire of Charlemagne. When, however, the German interregnum after the death of Frederick II, the last of the Hohenstaufens, came to all end, and Rudolf of Habsburg was elected first Habsburg emperor, 1273, the policy of Rome began to fluctuate between France and Germany, wearing about with the sympathies of each successive pope. In the East, in 1261, the Greeks recaptured Constantinople from the Latin emperors, and the founder of the new Greek dynasty, Michael Paleologus, Michael VIII, after some unreal tentatives of reconciliation with the pope, broke away from the Roman communion altogether, and with that, and the fall of the Latin kingdoms in Asia, the eastward ascendancy of the popes came to an end. In 1294, Boniface VIII became pope. He was an Italian, hostile to the French, and full of a sense of the great traditions and missions of Rome. For a time he carried things with a high hand. In 1300 he held a jubilee, and a vast multitude of pilgrims assembled in Rome. So great was the influx of money into the papal treasury that two assistants were kept busy with the rakes collecting the offerings that were deposited at the tomb of St. Peter. But this festival was a delusive triumph. Boniface came into conflict with the French king in 1302, and in 1303, as he was about to pronounce sentence of excommunication against that monarch, he was surprised and arrested in his own ancestral palace at Anagni by Guillemy de Nogaret. This agent from the French king forced an entrance into the palace, made his way into the bedroom of the frightened pope. He was lying in bed with a cross in his hands, and heaped threats and insults upon him. The Pope was liberated a day or so later by the townspeople, and returned to Rome, but there he was seized upon and again made prisoner 
by the Orsini family, and in a few weeks' time the shocked and disillusioned old man died a prisoner in their hands. The people of Anagni did resent the first outrage, and rose against Nogaret to liberate Boniface, but then Anagni was the Pope's native town. The important point to note is that the French king, in this rough treatment of the head of Christendom, was acting with the full approval of his people. He had summoned a council of the three estates of France, lords, church, and commons, and gained their consent before proceeding to extremities. Neither in Italy, Germany, nor England was there the slightest general manifestation of disapproval at this free handling of the sovereign pontiff. The idea of Christendom had decayed until its power over the minds of men had gone. Throughout the fourteenth century the papacy did nothing to recover its moral sway. The next pope elected Clement V, but a Frenchman, the choice of King Philip of France. He never came to Rome. He set up his court in the town of Avignon, which then belonged not to France but to the Papal See, though embedded in French territory, and there his successors remained until 1377, when Pope Gregory XI returned to the Vatican Palace in Rome. But Gregory XI did not take the sympathies of the whole Church with him. Many of the cardinals were of French origin, and their habits and associations were rooted deep at Avignon. When in 1378 Gregory XI died, and an Italian, Urban VI, was elected, these dissentient cardinals declared the election invalid, and elected another pope, the antipope Clement VIII. This split is called the Great Schism. The popes remained in Rome, and all the anti-French powers, the emperor, the King of England, Hungary, Poland, and the North of Europe were loyal to them. The anti-popes, on the other hand, continued in Avignon and were supported by the King of France, his ally, the King of Scotland, Spain, Portugal, and various German princes. Each pope excommunicated and cursed the adherents of his rival, 1378-1417. Is it any wonder that presently all over Europe people began to think for themselves in matters of religion. The beginnings of the Franciscans and Dominicans, which we have noted in the preceding chapters, were but two among many of the new forces that were arising in Christendom, either to hold or shatter the Church, as its own wisdom might decide. Those two orders the Church did assimilate and use, though with a little violence in the case of the former. But other forces were more frankly disobedient and critical. A century and a half later came Wycliffe, 1320-1384. He was a learned doctor at Oxford. Quite late in his life he began a series of outspoken criticisms of the corruption of the clergy and the unwisdom of the Church. He organized a number of poor priests, the Wycliffeites, to spread his ideas throughout England, and in order that people should judge between the Church and himself, he translated the Bible into English. He was a more learned 
and far abler man than either St. Francis or St. Dominic. He had supporters in high places, and a great following among the people. And though Rome raged against him, and ordered his imprisonment, he died a free man. But the black and ancient spirit that was leading the Catholic Church to its destruction would not let his bones rest in the grave. By a decree of the Council of Constance in 1415, his remains were ordered to be dug up and burned, an order which was carried out by the command of Pope Martin V by Bishop Fleming in 1428. This desecration was not the act of some isolated fanatic, it was the official act of the Church. End of chapter 47 Chapter 48 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells The Mongol Conquests But in the thirteenth century, while this strange and finally ineffectual struggle to unify Christendom under the rule of the Pope was going on in Europe, far more momentous events were afoot upon the larger stage of Asia. A Turkish people from the country to the north of China rose suddenly to prominence in the world's affairs, and achieved such a series of conquests as has no parallel in history. These were the Mongols. At the opening of the thirteenth century, they were a horde of nomadic horsemen, living very much as their predecessors, the Huns, had done, subsisting chiefly upon meat and mare's milk, and living in tents of skin. They had shaken themselves free from Chinese dominion, and brought a number of other Turkish tribes into a military confederacy. Their central camp was at Karakorum in Mongolia. At this time China was in a state of division. The great dynasty of Tang had passed into decay by the 10th century, and after a phase of division into warring states, three main empires, that of Qin in the north, with Pekin as its capital, and that of Sung in the south, with a capital at Nankin, and Xia in the center remain. In 1214, Genghis Khan, the leader of the Mongol confederates, made war on the Qin Empire and captured Pekin, 1214. He then turned westward and conquered western Turkestan, Persia, Armenia, India down to Lahore, and South Russia as far as Kiev. He died master of a vast empire that reached from the Pacific to the Dnieper. His successor, Ogdai Khan, continued this astonishing career of conquest. His armies were organized to a very high level of efficiency, and they had with them a new Chinese invention, gunpowder, which they used in small field guns. He completed the conquest of the Qin Empire, and then swept his hosts right across Asia to Russia, 1235, an altogether amazing march. Kiev was destroyed in 1240, and nearly all Russia became tributary to the Mongols. Poland was ravaged, and a mixed army of Poles and Germans was annihilated at the Battle of Lignitz in Lower Silesia in 1241. The Emperor Frederick II does not seem to have made any great efforts to stay the advancing tide. 
It is only recently, says Berry, in his notes to Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, that European history has begun to understand that the successes of the Mongol army, which overran Poland and occupied Hungary in the spring of A.D. 1241, were won by consummate strategy, and were not due to a mere overwhelming superiority of numbers. But this fact has not yet become a matter of common knowledge. The vulgar opinion, which represents the Tartars as a wild horde carrying all before them, solely by their multitude, and galloping through Eastern Europe without a strategic plan, rushing at all obstacles and overcoming them by mere weight, still prevails. It is wonderful how punctually and effectually the arrangements were carried out in operations extending from the lower Vistula to Transylvania. Such a campaign was quite beyond the power of any European army of the time, and it was beyond the vision of any European commander. There was no general in Europe, from Frederick II downward, who was not a tyro in strategy compared to Subutai. It should also be noticed that the Mongols embarked upon the enterprise with full knowledge of the political situation of Hungary and the condition of Poland. They had taken care to inform themselves by a well-organized system of spies. On the other hand, the Hungarians and the Christian powers, like childish barbarians, knew hardly anything about their enemies. But though the Mongols were victorious at Lignitz, they did not continue their drive westward. They were getting into woodlands and hilly country, which did not suit their tactics, and so they turned southward and prepared to settle in Hungary, massacring or assimilating the kindred Magyar, even as these had previously massacred and assimilated the mixed Scythians and Avars and Huns before them. From the Hungarian plain they would probably have made raids west and south, as the Hungarians had done in the ninth century, the Avars in the seventh, and eighth, and the Huns in the fifth. But Ogdai died suddenly, and in 1242 there was trouble about the succession, and recalled by this, the undefeated hosts of Mongols began to pour back across Hungary and Romania towards the east. Thereafter the Mongols concentrated their attention upon their Asiatic conquests. By the middle of the 13th century they had conquered the Sung Empire. Mangu Khan succeeded Ogdai Khan as Great Khan in 1251, and made his brother Kublai Khan governor of China. In 1280 Kublai Khan had been formally recognized Emperor of China, and so founded the Yuan dynasty which lasted until 1368. While the last ruins of the Sung rule were going down in China, another brother of Mangu, Hulagu, was conquering Persia and Syria. The Mongols displayed a bitter animosity to Islam at this time, and not only massacred the population of Baghdad when they captured that city, but set to work to destroy the immemorial irrigation system which had kept Mesopotamia incessantly prosperous and populous from the early days of Sumeria. From that time until our own, Mesopotamia has been a desert in ruins, sustaining only a scanty population. 
Into Egypt the Mongols never penetrated. The Sultan of Egypt completely defeated an army of Hulagus in Palestine in 1260. After that disaster, the tide of Mongol victory ebbed. The dominions of the Great Khan fell into a number of separate states. The Eastern Mongols became Buddhists, like the Chinese. The Western became Muslim. The Chinese threw off the rule of the Yian dynasty in 1368, and set up the native Ming dynasty, which flourished from 1368 to 1644. The Russians remained tributary to the Tartar hordes upon the southeast steppes until 1480, when the Grand Duke of Moscow repudiated his allegiance and laid the foundation of modern Russia. In the 14th century, there was a brief revival of Mongol vigor under Timurlane, a descendant of Genghis Khan. He established himself in western Turkestan, assumed the title of Grand Khan in 1369, and conquered from Syria to Delhi. He was the most savage and destructive of all the Mongol conquerors. He established an empire of desolation that did not survive his death. In 1505, however, a descendant of this Timur, an adventurer named Babur, got together an army with guns and swept down upon the plains of India. His grandson Akbar, 1556-1605, completed his conquests, and this Mongol, or Mogul as the Arabs called it, dynasty ruled in Delhi over the greater part of India until the 18th century. One of the consequences of the first great sweep of Mongol conquest in the 13th century was to drive a certain tribe of Turks, the Ottoman Turks, out of Turkestan into Asia Minor. They extended and consolidated their power in Asia Minor, crossed the Dardanelles and conquered Macedonia, Serbia and Bulgaria, until at last Constantinople remained, like an island, amongst the Ottoman dominions. In 1453, the Ottoman Sultan, Mohammed II, took Constantinople, attacking it from the European side with a great number of guns. This event caused intense excitement in Europe, and there was talk of a crusade, but the day of the crusades was past. In the course of the 16th century, the Ottoman Sultans conquered Baghdad, Hungary, Egypt, and most of North Africa, and their fleet made them masters of the Mediterranean. They very nearly took Vienna, and they exacted its tribute from the emperor. There were but two items to offset the general ebb of Christian dominion in the 15th century. One was the restoration of the independence of Moscow, 1480. The other was the gradual reconquest of Spain by the Christians. In 1492, Granada, the last Muslim state in the peninsula fell to King Ferdinand of Aragon and his Queen Isabella of Castile. But it was not until as late as 1571 that the naval battle of Lepanto broke the prick of the Ottomans and restored the Mediterranean waters to Christian ascendancy. End of chapter 48 Chapter 49 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells The Intellectual Revival of the Europeans 
Throughout the twelfth century there were many signs that the European intelligence was recovering courage and leisure, and preparing to take up again the intellectual enterprises of the first Greek scientific inquiries, and such speculations as those of the Italian Lucretius. The causes of this revival were many and complex. The suppression of private war, the higher standards of comfort and security that followed the Crusades, and the stimulation of men's minds by the experiences of these expeditions, were no doubt necessary preliminary conditions. Trade was reviving, cities were recovering ease and safety, the standard of education was arising in the church and spreading among laymen. The thirteenth and fourteenth centuries was a period of growing, independent or quasi-independent cities. Venice, Florence, Genoa, Lisbon, Paris, Bruges, London, Antwerp, Hamburg, Nuremberg, Novgorod, Visby, and Bergen, for example. They were all trading cities, with many travellers, and where men trade and travel, they talk and think. The polemics of the popes and princes, the conspicuous savagery and wickedness of the persecution of heretics, were exciting men to doubt the authority of the church and question and discuss fundamental things. We have seen how the Arabs were the means of restoring Aristotle to Europe, and how such a prince as Frederick II acted as a channel through which Arabic philosophy and science played upon the renascent European mind. Still more influential in the stirring up of men's ideas were the Jews. Their vast existence was a note of interrogation to the claims of the Church. And finally, the secret, fascinating inquiries of the alchemists were spreading far and wide and setting men to the petty, furtive, and yet fruitful resumption of experimental science. And the stir in men's minds was by no means confined now to the independent and well-educated. The mind of the common man was awake in the world as it had never been before in all the experience of mankind. In spite of priest and persecution, Christianity does seem to have carried a mental ferment wherever its teaching reached. It established a direct relation between the conscience of the individual man and the God of righteousness, so that now, if need arose, he had the courage to form his own judgment upon prince or prelate or creed. As early as the eleventh century, philosophical discussion had begun again in Europe, and there were great and growing universities at Paris, Oxford, Bologna, and other centers. There, medieval schoolmen took up again and thrashed out a series of questions upon the value and meaning of words that were a necessary preliminary to clear thinking and scientific age that was to follow. And standing by himself, because of his distinctive genius, was Roger Bacon, circa 1210 to circa 1293, a Franciscan of Oxford, the father of modern experimental science. His name deserves a prominence in our history second only to that of Aristotle. His writings are one long tirade against ignorance. He told his age it was ignorant, an incredibly bold thing to do. 
Nowadays a man may tell the world it is as silly as it is solemn, that all its methods are still infantile and clumsy, and its dogmas childish assumptions, without much physical danger. But these peoples of the Middle Ages, when they were not actually being massacred, or starving, or dying of pestilence, were passionately convinced of the wisdom, the completeness and finality of their beliefs, and disposed to resent any reflections upon them very bitterly. Roger Bacon's writings were like a flash of light in a profound darkness. He combined his attack upon the ignorance of his times with a wealth of suggestion for the increase of knowledge. In his passionate insistence upon the need of experiment and of collecting knowledge, the spirit of Aristotle lives again in him. Experiment, experiment, that is the burthen of Roger Bacon. Yet of Aristotle himself Roger Bacon fell foul. He fell foul of him because men, instead of facing facts boldly, sat in rooms and pored over the bad Latin translations, which were then all that was available of the master. If I had my way, he wrote in his intemperate fashion, I should burn all the books of Aristotle, for the study of them can only lead to a loss of time, produce error, and increase ignorance. A sentiment that Aristotle would probably have echoed could he have returned to a world in which his works were not so much read as worshipped, and that, as Roger Bacon showed, in these most abominable translations. Throughout his books, a little disguised by the necessity of seeming to square it all with orthodoxy for fear of the prison and worse, Roger Bacon shouted to mankind, Cease to be ruled by dogmas and authorities. Look at the world. Four chief sources of ignorance he denounced, respect of authority, custom, the sense of the ignorant crowd, and the vain, proud unteachableness of our dispositions. Overcome but these, and the world of power would open to men. Machines for navigating are possible without rovers, so that great ships suited to river or ocean, guided by one man, may be borne with greater speed than if they were full of men. Likewise cars may be made, so that without a draught animal they may be moved, cum impetu incestimable, as we deem the skyst chariots to have been from which antiquity fought. And flying machines are possible, so that a man may sit in the middle turning some device, by which artificial wings may beat the air in the manner of a flying bird. So Roger Bacon wrote, but three more centuries were to elapse before man began any systematic attempts to explore the hidden stores of power and interest he realized so clearly existed beneath the dull surface of human affairs. But the Saracenic world not only gave Christendom the stimulus of its philosophers and alchemists, it also gave it paper. It is scarcely too much to say that paper made the intellectual revival of Europe possible. Paper originated in China, where its use probably goes back to the 2nd century BC. In 751, the Chinese made an attack upon the Arab Muslims in Samarkand. They were repulsed, and among the prisoners taken from them were some skilled paper makers, from whom the art was learned.
Arabic paper manuscripts from the ninth century onward still exist. The manufacture entered Christendom either through Greece or by the capture of Moorish paper mills during the Christian reconquest of Spain. But under the Christian Spanish, the product deteriorated sadly. Good paper was not made in Christian Europe until the end of the 13th century, and then it was Italy which led the world. Only by the 14th century did the manufacture reach Germany, and not until the end of that century was it abundant and cheap enough for the printing of books to be a practicable business proposition. Thereupon, printing followed naturally and necessarily, for printing is the most obvious of inventions, and the intellectual life of the world entered upon a new and far more vigorous phase. It ceased to be a little trickle from mind to mind, it became a broad flood, in which thousands and presently scores and hundreds of thousands of minds participated. One immediate result of this achievement of printing was the appearance of an abundance of Bibles in the world. Another was a cheapening of school books. The knowledge of reading spread swiftly. There was not only a great increase of books in the world, but the books that were now made were plainer to read and so easier to understand. Instead of toiling at a crabbed text, arid then thinking over its significance, readers now could think, unimpeded as they read. With this increase in the facility of reading, the reading public grew. The book ceased to be a highly decorated toy or a scholar's mystery. People began to write books to be read as well as looked at by ordinary people. They wrote in the ordinary language and not in Latin. With the 14th century, the real history of the European literature begins. So far we have been dealing only with the Saracenic share in the European revival. Let us turn now to the influence of the Mongol conquests. They stimulated the geographical imagination of Europe enormously. For a time under the great Khan, all Asia and Western Europe enjoyed an open intercourse. All the roads were temporarily open, and representatives of every nation appeared at the court of Karakorum. The barriers between Europe and Asia, set up by the religious void of Christianity and Islam, were lowered. Great hopes were entertained by the papacy for the conversion of the Mongols to Christianity. Their only religion so far had been Shumanism, a primitive paganism. Envoys of the Pope, Buddhist priests from India, Parisian and Italian and Chinese artificers, Byzantine and Armenian merchants, mingled with Arab officials and Persian and Indian astronomers and mathematicians at the Mongol court. We hear too much in history of the campaigns and massacres of the Mongols, and not enough of their curiosity and desire for learning. Not perhaps as an originative people, but as transmitters of knowledge and method, their influence upon the world's history has been very great. And everything one can learn of the vague and romantic personalities of Genghis or Kublai tends to confirm the impression that these men were at least as understanding and creative monarchs as either that flamboyant but egoistical figure Alexander the Great, 
or that raiser of political ghosts, the energetic but illiterate theologian Charlemagne. One of the most interesting of these visitors to the Mongol court was a certain Venetian, Marco Polo, who afterwards set down his story in a book. He went to China about 1272 with his father and uncle, who had already once made the journey. The great Khan had been deeply impressed by the elder Polos. They were the first men of the Latin peoples he had seen, and he sent them back with inquiries for teachers and learned men who could explain Christianity to him, and for various other European things that had aroused his curiosity. Their visit with Marco was their second visit. The three Polos started by the way of Palestine, and not by the Crimea, as in their previous expedition. They had with them a gold tablet and other indications from the Gate Khan that must have greatly facilitated their journey. The Great Khan had asked for some oil from the lamp that burns in the holy sepulchre at Jerusalem, and so thither they first went, and then by way of Kilikia into Armenia. They went thus far north because the Sultan of Egypt was raiding the Mongol domains at this time. Thence they came by way of Mesopotamia to Ormuz on the Persian Gulf, as if they contemplated a sea voyage. At Ormuz they met merchants from India. For some reason they did not take ship, but instead turned northward through the Persian deserts, and so, by way of Balkh, over the Pamir to Kashgar, and by way of Khotan and the Lobnor into the Huanghu Valley and on to Pekin. At Pekin was the great Khan, and they were hospitably entertained. Marco particularly pleased Kublai. He was young and clever, and it is clear he had mastered the Tartar language very thoroughly. He was given an official position and sent on several missions, chiefly in southwest China. The tale he had to tell of vast stretches of smiling and prosperous country, all the way excellent hostelries for travelers, and fine vineyards, fields, and gardens, of many abbeys of Buddhist monks, of manufactures of cloth of silk and gold, and many fine taffetas, a constant succession of cities and boroughs, and so on, first roused the incredulity, and then fired the imagination of all Europe. He told of Burma, and of its great armies with hundreds of elephants, and how these animals were defeated by the Mongol bowmen, and also of the Mongol conquest of Pegu. He told of Japan, and greatly exaggerated the amount of gold in that country. For three years Marco ruled the city of Yangzhou as governor, and he probably impressed the Chinese inhabitants as being little more of a foreigner than any Tartar would have been. He may also have been sent on a mission to India. Chinese records mention a certain polo attached to the Imperial Council in 1277, a very valuable confirmation of the general truth of the Polo story. The publication of Marco Polo's travels produced a profound effect upon the European imagination. The European literature, and especially the European romance of the 15th century, echoes with the names in Marco Polo's story, with Cathay, North China, and Cambulac, Pekin, and the like. 
Two centuries later, among the readers of the travels of Marco Polo, was a certain Genoese mariner, Christopher Columbus, who conceived the brilliant idea of sailing westward round the world to China. In Seville, there is a copy of the travels with marginal notes by Columbus. There were many reasons why the thought of a Genoese should be turned in this direction. Until its capture by the Turks in 1453, Constantinople had been an impartial trading mart between the Western world and the East, and the Genoese had traded there freely. But the Latin Venetians, the bitter rivals of the Genoese, had been the allies and helpers of the Turks against the Greeks, and with the coming of the Turks, Constantinople turned an unfriendly face upon Genoese trade. The long-forgotten discovery that the world was round had gradually resumed its sway over men's minds. The idea of going westward to China was therefore a fairly obvious one. It was encouraged by two things. The mariner's compass had now been invented, and men were no longer left to the mercy of a fine night and the stars to determine the direction in which they were sailing, and the Normans, Catalonians, and Genoese and Portuguese had already pushed out into the Atlantic as far as the Canary Isles, Madeira, and the Azores. Yet Columbus found many difficulties before he could get ships to put his idea to the test. He went from one European court to another. Finally, at Granada, just won from the Moors, he secured the patronage of Ferdinand and Isabella, and was able to set out across the unknown ocean in three small ships. After a voyage of two months and nine days, he came to a land which he believed to be India, but which was really a new continent, whose distinct existence the old world had never hitherto suspected. He returned to Spain with gold, cotton, strange beasts and birds, and two wild-eyed painted Indians to be baptized. They were called Indians because, to the end of his days, he believed that this land he found was India. Only in the course of several years did men begin to realize that the whole new continent of America was added to the world's resources. The success of Columbus stimulated overseas enterprise enormously. In 1497, the Portuguese sailed round Africa to India, and in 1515, there were Portuguese ships in Java. In 1519, Magellan, a Portuguese sailor in Spanish employment, sailed out of Seville westward with five ships, of which one, the Vitoria, came back up the river to Seville in 1522, the first ship that had ever circumnavigated the world. Thirty-one men were aboard her, survivors of 280 who had started. Magellan himself had been killed in the Philippine Isles. Printed paper books, a new realization of the round world as a thing altogether attainable, a new vision of strange lands, strange animals and plants, strange manners and customs, discoveries overseas and in the skies, and in the ways and materials of life, burst upon the European mind. The Greek classics, buried and forgotten for so long, were speedily being printed and studied, and were coloring men's thoughts with the dreams of Plato, 
and the traditions of an age of republican freedom and dignity. The Roman dominion had first brought law and order to Western Europe, and the Latin Church had restored it, but under both pagan and Catholic Rome, curiosity and innovation were subordinate to and restrained by organization. The reign of the Latin mind was now drawing to an end. Between the 13th and the 16th century, the European Aryans, thanks to the stimulating influence of Semite and Mongol, and the rediscovery of the Greek classics, broke away from the Latin tradition and rose again to the intellectual and material leadership of mankind. End of chapter 49 Chapter 50 of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells The Reformation of the Latin Church The Latin Church itself was enormously affected by this mental rebirth. It was dismembered, and even the portion that survived was extensively renewed. We have told how nearly the Church came to the autocratic leadership of all Christendom in the 11th and 12th centuries, and how in the 14th and 15th its power over men's minds and affairs declined. We have described how popular religious enthusiasm, which had, in earlier ages, been its support and power, was turned against it by its pride, persecutions, and centralization, and how the insidious skepticism of Frederick II bore fruit in a growing insubordination of the princes. The great schism had reduced its religious and political prestige to negligible proportions. The forces of insurrection struck it now from both sides. The teachings of the Englishman Wycliffe spread widely throughout Europe. In 1398, a learned Czech, John Haas, delivered a series of lectures upon Wycliffe's teachings in the University of Prague. This teaching spread rapidly beyond the educated class and aroused great popular enthusiasm. In 1414-1418, a council of the whole church was held at Constance to settle the great schism. Huss was invited to this council under promise of a safe conduct from the emperor, seized, put on trial for heresy, and burnt alive, 1415. So far from tranquilizing the Bohemian people, this led to an insurrection of the Hussites in that country, the first of a series of religious wars that inaugurated the breakup of Latin Christendom. Against this insurrection, Pope Martin V, the Pope specially elected at Constance as the head of a reunited Christendom, preached a crusade. Five crusades in all were launched upon this sturdy little people, and all of them failed. All the unemployed ruffianism of Europe was turned upon Bohemia in the 15th century, just as in the 13th it had been turned upon the Waldenses. But the Bohemian Czechs, unlike the Waldenses, believed in armed resistance. The Bohemian Crusade dissolved and streamed away from the battlefield at the sound of the Hussites' wagons and the distant chanting of their troops. It did not even wait to fight. Battle of Domaslitz, 1431. In 1436, an agreement was patched up with the Hussites by the new council of the church at Basel, in which many of the special objections to Latin practice were conceded. 
In the 15th century, a great pestilence had produced much social disorganization throughout Europe. There had been extreme misery and discontent among the common people, and peasant risings against the landlords and the wealthy in England and France. After the Hussite Wars, these peasant insurrections increased in gravity in Germany and took on a religious character. Printing came in as an influence upon this development. By the middle of the 15th century, there were printers at work with movable type in Holland and the Rhineland. The art spread to Italy and England, where Caxton was printing in Westminster in 1477. The immediate consequence was a great increase in distribution of Bibles and greatly increased facilities for widespread popular controversies. The European world became a world of readers to an extent that had never happened to any community in the past, and this sudden irrigation of the general mind with clearer ideas and more accessible information occurred just at a time when the church was confused and divided and not in a position to defend itself effectively, and when many princes were looking for means to weaken its hold upon the vast wealth it claimed in their dominions. In Germany the attack upon the church gathered round the personality of an ex-monk, Martin Luther, 1483-1546, who appeared in Wittenberg in 1517, offering disputations against various orthodox doctrines and practices. At first he disputed in Latin in the fashion of the schoolman, then he took up the new weapon of the printed word and scattered his views far and wide in German, addressed to the ordinary people. An attempt was made to suppress him, as Husk had been suppressed, but the printing press had changed conditions, and he had too many open and secret friends among the German princes for this fate to overtake him. For now, in this age of multiplying ideas and weakened faith, there were many rulers who saw their advantage in breaking the religious ties between their people and Rome, they sought to make themselves in person the heads of a more nationalized religion. England, Scotland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, North Germany and Bohemia, one after another, separated themselves from the Roman communion. They have remained separated ever since. The various princes concerned cared very little for the moral and intellectual freedom of their subjects. They used the religious doubts and insurgents of the peoples to strengthen them against Rome, but they tried to keep a grip upon the popular movement as soon as that rupture was achieved and a national church set up under the control of the crown. But there has always been a curious vitality in the teaching of Jesus, a direct appeal to righteousness and a man's self-respect over every loyalty and every subordination lay or ecclesiastical. None of these princely churches broke off without also breaking off a number of fragmentary sects that would admit the intervention of neither prince nor pope between a man and his god. In England and Scotland, for example, there was a number of sects who now held firmly to the Bible as their one guide in life and belief. They refused the disciplines of a state church, in England, these dissentients were the nonconformists, 
who played a very large part in the polities of that country in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. In England, they carried their objection to a princely head to the church so far as to decapitate King Charles I, 1649, and for eleven prosperous years England was a republic under non-conformist rule. The breaking away of this large section of northern Europe from Latin Christendom is what is generally spoken of as the Reformation. But the shock and stress of these losses produce changes, perhaps as profound in the Roman Church itself. The Church was reorganized, and a new spirit came into its life. One of the dominant figures in this revival was a young Spanish soldier, Inigo López de Recalde, better known to the world as St. Ignatius of Loyola. After some romantic beginnings, he became a priest, 1538, and was permitted to found the Society of Jesus, a direct attempt to bring the generous and chivalrous traditions of military discipline into the service of religion. The Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, became one of the greatest teaching and missionary societies the world has ever seen. It carried Christianity to India, China, and America. It arrested the rapid disintegration of the Roman Church. It raised the standard of education throughout the whole Catholic world. It raised the level of Catholic intelligence and quickened the Catholic conscience everywhere. It stimulated Protestant Europe to competitive educational efforts. The vigorous and aggressive Roman Catholic Church we know today is largely the product of this Jesuit revival. End of chapter 50